Electric bicycles are my jam. I'm turning into a nut for a good e-bike. It's easy to get around, we save gas not driving our car for short trips to the store, and I'm getting a little extra exercise. The folks at Velotrick are sponsoring a series of videos on my channel to show off some affordable e-bikes and help people get up to speed. It's easier than you think, and prices have never been more competitive. You can catch those videos on my YouTube channel, but if you're interested in shopping an e-bike, head over to velotrick.bike slash some gadget guy and look at their road bikes and fat tires. Again, V-E-L-O-T-R-I-C dot B-I-K-E slash some gadget guy. Velatric dot bike slash some gadget guy. If any of those bikes look good to you, you can save an additional $60 off an already low price by using the coupon code SOMEGADGET60, SOMEGADGET60 at checkout. Once again, Velatric dot bike slash some gadget guy and coupon code SOMEGADGET60. And I thank Velatric for being a sponsor on this show. I believe this means we are live. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, tech fans of all shapes and sorts and sizes and persuasions, welcome to another episode of the Monday Morning Tech Chat Show on the SGGQA podcast channel. I'm Juan Carlos Bagnell, a.k.a. some gadget guy, the SGG of this terrifically poorly named podcast, but the QA, that's the important part, obviously stands for question and answer, and we like to dig in. Last week... I did more talking than I've done in months, and it was a pretty slow news week. This week seems like the dam broke, and we got news to talk about. So we're going to try to jump in efficiently. I'm I'm seeing a a great group of geeks in here this morning. I'm seeing Simon Says Hypno, Pacostin. Uh, I'm seeing Mountain Dew Lou, Copacash. Where else am I? Uh, J-Man150, Ghost Starscream. Um, T-Bubs45, Ghost Arts Ring, we're going to be chatting about that. You know you failed when everybody refuses to call the site what you really want it to be called. And it's just yet another week of dumpster fires over on Twitter that I refuse to call it X. Let's go, one T-Bubs45, let's go, let's go. And Bionic Scoop is saying, yo. <laughs> Sorry, I just like did a rewatch of Silicon Valley, so... The Yo app would would do well in this current uh, in this current climate. I, T-Bubs, I did check out Elfster. Unfortunately, I'm not. I wasn't able to convince enough of our cousins to do the Secret Santa again this year. Um, so uh, Elfster is is bookmarked though. So we're gonna do Elfster for uh, future gift exchanges. Barry Johnson. Uh, 15 print hello back to you, Juan. Just a little uh, pre chat where we were talking about hello world and i had to think about it for a second but like it's the most basic basic program (laughs) print hello world so uh, you know jokes are always funnier when you explain them (laughs) oh dave burns that sounds lovely i spent the weekend at pax unplugged and got some killer board games that sounds like the right way to do this. Um, that that sounds like that that sounds like a really nice time. Brian Glay saying good morning, Dave Burns. Oh, are we talking about programming in Basic again? <laughs> I mean, when are we not talking about programming in Basic? All right, we 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 have a lot to get through. Um, and and I do. This is stuff that I really want us to kind of keep an eye on and. 
like I said, this was just like a really full week. Last week was a really full week for getting some content out. Um, I was really heavy on the Patreon last week. And then on top of that, uh, I, sort of how long it takes to produce content and then like publish it. Uh, I, I just, it was really lovely getting to catch up with a bunch of friends. So, um, oh, T-Bubs. I don't know. Hmm. That's actually not a terrible idea. T-Bubs45 saying, could we ever do a gift exchange uh, with some of the SGGQA people? Let me think on that. Let me ponder on that. Because the thing that would break my heart is if we had a whole bunch of people with the best of intentions think about signing up and then folks who signed up get left out. And so I I was always really anxious when, like the Reddit gift exchanges and stuff like that. I think there's a way that we could do that. I think it could be fun, but I don't want to rush into setting something up and then having some people be sort of left out. Um, Let me get this out of the way here. So uh, I also do want to send a shout out to Gabaletta, subscribed with Prime. They've been subscribed for 24 months that's our two-year anniversary. You get this fanfare of glory, glory, glory. This fanfare of glory, uh, courtesy of the soundboard sent to me by one Mr. Barry Johnson. Ta-da! You're awesome. Thank you so much for supporting the production, and I've always just enjoyed seeing your name pop up in the chat. So, uh, I really do appreciate everybody who's supporting the show. So, um, let's jump in. I've got housekeeping to get through. We've got news links to get through. I'm going to say that I can't spend three hours on this week's show. I might. This might be a three-hour show. I, I, I really don't know. Uh, Simon says, Hypno, that's our cotton anniversary. Oh, nice. We can get some nice linens. All right. Uh, first up, just housekeeping galore. Last week, uh, I, I did finally get out the camera review on the Oppo Find X6 Pro. And not just a camera review, but sort of an expanded conversation on buying an ultra phone for 2023 against more of the premium phones from 2024. So that was, I think, was kind of an important aspect of this chat where we saw a bunch of phones with like one-inch sensors and Snapdragon 8 Gen 2. So if you don't care about AI, you know, like doing language learning model stuff on your phone, there's kind of a trade-off happening with a lot of phones getting smaller but brighter image sensors next year. So you've got a choice. Do you want a phone that's better at soaking up light for low light photography? Or do you want a phone that has a shallower depth of field with a more photographic look? And that's an interesting fight. So I, I got that that review out last week. This week, um, this past week, I finally was able to nail this sucker down. The Pixel Fold Camera Review, colon, the pixel that lies to you? You see how I did that? It's a big old question mark. Does this Pixel camera lie to you? Drama? And and it's an up inflect because I'm asking a question, which is meant to sort of imply a certain kind of drama. See, that's how the internet works. That's how you get people hooked. (laughs) So that's that's available on the Patreon. It's a 20-minute examination of the Pixel Fold camera performance. And like the, the Find X6 Pro, although I didn't... It didn't take me as long to finish the video on the Fold as it did the Find X6 Pro. Um, I've, it's a situation where you want to rush out and you want to get 
this content out at the peak of a phone's popularity, but more and more, I wait a little bit, I get a few updates, it's running Android 14, it's running the newest uh, camera app updates from Google, and I'm really glad I waited. Because there were some things that if I had rushed to put out a camera review right at launch, the Pixel Fold would have left a very different impression than waiting. There were a lot of things that I think have been cleaned up and improved and the performance has gotten better. But on top of that, there are also some decisions made by Google that I question. And I'm, some of this also comes back down to marketing. And I really don't appreciate how some of these products are marketed. So um, th that's a 20-minute camera examination and deep dive. If you want to check it out, that's on Patreon, patreon.com slash somegadgetguy. Going back into screen share here, uh, this is a video that will probably go be going public soon. Can a five-year-old phone compete today? How far has Android come? And I'm looking back at an older phone just to see what kind of performance. We keep getting promised all of these massive improvements year over year for these hot new chips and these amazing new camera sensors. And so really just looking at performance and the, the sort of lack of benchmark testing that we see in Android, what would it be like if you were still using a Snapdragon 855 today? And this is a video, this is a 15 minute video. Um, that's, uh, it was really fun to put together and it's currently on the Patreon, but this one will be going public. Then I also put together just a little short, Xiaomi massive fail, 13 Ultra case falling apart, hashtag shorts. Um, the Xiaomi 13 Ultra is my favorite camera phone of 2023. I absolutely adore the hardware. I'm still very much annoyed by some of the software decisions, but uh, the thing that really is breaking my heart is I have been begging for years um, oops, that's not what I want to do. There we go. I've been begging since the launch of the Xperia 1 Mark 1 for companies to make their own first-party camera-focused accessories. And so the Xiaomi 13 Ultra case, this is a huge step in the right direction. Proper photography-built accessories, 67-millimeter thread. You can get filters just at any photography store, and they fit this case. But I have now taken to like slathering super glue. And I, I've got to get in there and get like some fine sandpaper and clean this up because it's pretty gross right now. But super gluing all of the corners of this case just to keep it intact. I am so gutted by the durability of this case because the functionality is fantastic. But you can get a closer look at that in 60 seconds or less on the short that I put together for that. It really bums me out. All right, just a couple quick other um, updates here. I wrote an art, uh, an editorial, Foldable Phones, The Better Travel Computer. Just some experiences taking a bunch of flights recently and packing foldables. Uh, specifically in this most recent trip, trying to lean on the OnePlus Open and what that was like instead of uh, packing and carrying a laptop to get all my work done. And then, oh, this is the Oppo Find X6 Pro camera review. Uh, another huge shout out to one Mr. Barry Johnson. I have him linked right here uh, for letting me borrow his phone so I could check out what a OnePlus Pro Ultra Plus would have been. I really hope Oppo starts bringing a bit more of this hardware to the United States. Although some of those rumors on the OnePlus 12 are looking pretty dang good. So hopefully uh, there's a little bit more of a Venn diagram overlap between the best that Oppo carries and the best that OnePlus carries. Now, to wrap up housekeeping, like I said, 
there was a lot of podcasting this last week. So first of all, there was the Monday morning show. Last last Monday, we did a pajama podcast. It was lovely. I needed to take that time off. Uh, then on Tuesday, there we go. Uh, I joined the folks over at Android Faithful, part of the Daily Tech News Show crew. They've got their own little playlist right here on the YouTubes. And I was joined by one of my good friends, Tashaka Armstrong, uh, for episode 21, turning a semi-boring genre of tech into magic. Sort of a nice little backhanded compliment for a show that I really enjoy <laughs> being a part of. But we had a, a great conversation on a slow news day, just kind of digging into... Uh, Tashaka put together this great article on uh, sort of Android hacks to make your holiday season a little easier for like scheduling and managing and sharing photos and doing all that stuff. Great article, but it really did help kind of like flesh out what was otherwise a pretty slow news week. Then... On Thursday, uh, uh, TK, my, my buddy TK and I, we host Best of Our Week, but TK was a little under the weather. He just needed some time to catch up from all of his travels. No, I don't want to play the... Don't do that. Come on, YouTube. There we go. Um, and so I went live, and the first like couple minutes of the show are me just sort of awkwardly rambling about how we needed to give TK the night off. But then my buddy, one Mr. Adam Dowd from Benefit of the Dowd and doing a ton of great freelancer work, uh, popped on by. So even though it was super, super late for him, I really appreciate him dropping by just to kind of flesh out another really fun conversation. And uh, what was great is I've known Adam so long uh, I felt it totally appropriate for me to put him on the spot. And I was like, Adam, you have not prepped for this podcast. I've given you no indication of where this is going. What are your top three most underrated technologies of 2023? Go. And we had a really great conversation about that. I mean, again, it's fun when you can kind of trust someone to come in and be like, I don't know, just off the top of my head. This is hilarious. So that was a really fun uh, chat and conversation. And then... Uh, this Saturday, I got to hang out with two more gents that I really enjoy their conversations, and uh, I really like spending time with them. The Phones Show chat with uh, Ted Salmon and Steve Litchfield. Usually it's the other way around. Usually Steve Litchfield gets top billing. But um, I joined their show on Saturday, and there are some... There, this is... I, I, I don't, I don't, I'm going to preface this by saying I don't want to slight anyone that I podcast with. But there are some shows that are very broad and general, kind of low-level, consumer-y sort of kinds of conversations, fun and casual. Then there are some channels where it's like, we're going to dig into settings, and we're going to get nerdy. And I felt like I hit the entire spectrum of podcasting in one week, from the, the sort of most general consumer interest sort of tech to with Steve and Ted. We were... Where do we find this setting on an Xperia 5 to enable focus peaking in the pro modes on this one camera app? And that's the kind of stuff I love. How do we troubleshoot a second generation NextDoc Touch to use with Motorola Ready 4? I'm here for it. <laughs> so I really enjoyed it. This, this was, hold on, I got to do math. It was like two and a half, one and a half, that's five, seven. I did about 10 hours of podcasting over last week, and it was glorious. And I loved it. And so if you needed to hear me ramble on more, all of these shows will be in this week's show notes, along with all of the links that we're going to be talking about, all of the news, all of the housekeeping, all of the Patreons, 
uh, somegadgetguy.com. Uh, I, I really appreciate it. I've seen a few folks actually sharing the podcast link, and that's really awesome of you, so I appreciate that. I know we do the live part of this, and then we kind of dig in, but just those little, those little things like reviewing podcasts on your favorite podcast catchers and sharing the links out, because there's no algorithm here. I know we run a really niche kind of show, but it, it, it does kind of warm my heart when a few more people are finding that niche. So, uh, that's, yeah, that's all of our housekeeping. All the show, all the show notes, all the links, all the articles, everything, somegadgetguy.com. Let's, uh, I'm going to take just a quick sip of coffee because I can already feel my voice is starting to get a little, a little crunchy. And we're going to jump into some news and like Ghost Starscream already, uh, sort of, indicated we're not going to be talking about x we're going to be talking about twitter not not a game not a game not a game we're talking about practice one second (sighs) (sighs) that was a delayed sigh from drinking a delicious cup of coffee so I just got to keep highlighting that Twitter is the worst. Um, I never thought I would encounter a social media site run so poorly that it makes me sympathetic and appreciative of the efforts of Facebook, where I've been having some lovely interactions with folks over on threads. And again, I've got to highlight, if you want to have control over your social media destiny, then you should really be looking at federated sites like Lemmy and uh, Mastodon. And again, my impact per follower on those federated sites is in order of magnitude larger than what's happening with Twitter right now. And we've covered a lot of the other sort of fascist uh, adjacent issues with Twitter Uh, popularizing hate speech, not really moderating their content, leading to these wide open gaps, but then people paying into a system to maybe at some point monetize their content on Twitter, although Twitter controls all of the keys and all of they're the gatekeepers to your content being popular. So they can decide if your content is popular and that's how they pay you. So it's completely a payola scam it, it, it's it's not a pyramid scam, but it's it's a you know it, it, it's a it should be illegal. Um, but again, we our our legal system is horrifically antiquated and can't figure out how to litigate issues online without coming up with awkward metaphors for oh, it's sort of like if you have a magazine subscription. Thanks, Senator. That's exactly how tech works. So. Uh, let me get this out of the way here. We've got two quick back-to-back stories from from Twitter. Uh, purposely gaming, correct. It, it is effectively rigged. And it is painfully, obviously, stupidly rigged. And it makes me really sad that people keep paying for Twitter. <laughs> I figure the people should know better. Um, from Reuters. I, I don't... Does, I've, I've done this before. I don't believe Reuters carries a byline. At least not one that I see. Oh, nope, right at the bottom. <laughs> I'm dumb. Reporting by Michael Rose, edited by uh, Bernadette Baum. Paris Mayor quits X platform, calling it a gigantic global sewer. And from the article, Paris Mayor Anne Hidalgo 
on Monday announced she was quitting the ex-platform formerly known as Twitter, calling it a gigantic global sewer that was, quote, destroying our democracies, end quote, by spreading abuse and misinformation. We are finding fewer and fewer people of notable uh, political hierarchy interacting in earnest on this site. And yet, for some reason, reporters still feel like they have to be on Twitter. I'm going to spread the good news. The only way to fight misinformation is with good information. So that's lame. But then the follow-up to this was a, this, this whole uh, Elon Musk tour where he's trying to sound tough. Uh, this one's coming by Ars Technica, my man crush, one Mr. John Brodkin. Ex-advertisers stay away as CEO defends Musk's Go F Yourself interview. Elon's interview was candid and profound, Yaccarino writes in a memo to staff. And I just wonder, I mean, she's got to be making bank because she is this completely token figurehead of Twitter that seems to have absolutely no authority over the platform, cannot rein in the man-baby owner uh, that is wrecking Twitter, and is just sort of tasked with showing up in places completely uninformed to go, no, but I think it's good. It's good. Yeah, what he did was good. Quote, Elon's interview was candid and profound. He shared an unmatched and completely unvarnished perspective and vision of, for the future. If you haven't watched it, please take the time to absorb the magnitude and importance of what we're all a part of. And yeah, that's not how commerce works in the internet, on the internet. Uh, saying, if you don't want to advertise on my platform, you're blackmailing me. <laughs> you don't want to advertise on Twitter. Oh, it's blackmail. <laughs> He's trying so hard. So I, I think the thing that, that's really galling is, is it is sort of like an emperor's got no clothes kind of situation where there is so much effort applied to trying to spin Elon into looking halfway cool. And you can tell he is so thirsty. If you watch that clip where he's like, I've got the tough talk for the advertisers who don't want to advertise on my platform. You think you can come at me with money? Go F yourself. And then there's this like awkward titter of laughter in the crowd. And so he, he oh, someone appreciated what I said. I'll say it again. Go F yourself. And he's trying so hard. He, he just wants to be tough and cool so bad. But he's such a cliche of the, 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 the angry keyboard warrior. And the only reason we're paying attention to him is because his money has amplified his speech. The, he's the worst example of money as speech. And in any other realm, he would have been written off as the, 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 the sort of feckless, weak, incel, desperate tryhard that he is. And it's just galling. It is just so sad to see an endeavor like, like Twitter, what was my favorite social media platform for what you could turn it into is just completely ruined. It's, it's dead. <laughs> um, I, I got to catch up on the chat here. 
uh, go start scream. That my first article was not the new CEO of Twitter. That was the mayor of of Paris. So I, I should have prefaced that they are both women with dark hair. <laughs> um, Jimmy Fire Dragon is making sure people are staying hydrated. I, I do appreciate that. Brian Glaze, the fall of Twitter. Um, Barry Johnson, Elon said, "Go f yourself." <laughs> Go Starscream. I, I, so I, I think this is what's frustrating. Uh, how much longer are we going to see Twitter survive? Twitter is gone. Twitter is dead. What made Twitter a functional site ended as soon as Elon took over. That's, that's gone. There is a functional website that you can go to called the Twitter.com, or now it redirects you to x.com sometimes, and that has nothing to do with the community and the people who used to participate on twitter.com. And this is the philosophy. This is the sort of psychology that I, I, I can't get across to other people. What you did on Twitter in the past is not reflective of what this website is today. It is already properly dead. And so just so long as we can coast and see some kind of traffic to that site... It's not making money. It's scaring off more advertisers. There are going to be more lame, harebrained schemes to extract money from users. And it's all going to crash and burn at some point. It is unsustainable. So I, I appreciate all the people that are saying like, oh, I'm just here to watch the train wreck. But you're, you, participation and con- contribution kind of help maintain what, what the site is, is currently doing. Dave Burns, headline, world's richest oligarch surprised when egomaniacal sociopathic extreme, sociopathy extremely unpopular. Shock. I'm going to clutch my pearls because I'm a billionaire and I've been offended. <laughs> oh, Michael Corcoran, buddy. Hold on. We got to all push pause here for just a second. Uh my little sister died of cancer yesterday morning, so I'm kind of a walking zombie right now. Um, Michael, I am so sorry to hear that. And as, as someone who just recently lost a cousin, I cannot fathom what that must feel like and what you must be going through right now. I, I hope you and your family are taking some time to, to heal and to kind of come together over an absolutely awful event. And just know that you got a whole crew of geeks here looking out for you. If you need anything, if you need to reach out, you just need to chat. Um, any of us, I, I'm sure we would be happy to just kind of be a shoulder to lean on for something like that. I'm so sorry to hear that. I hope you're doing well. I, I, that one's, that, that one's going to hurt that's going to be rough. So, um, sorry, that was a hard transition and a hard shift. Uh, but I, I, I know we would all be concerned and we'd all be looking out for you there. So, um, I, I don't want to completely focus on what you must be going through. I, I know my role is kind of a court jester, news commentator. So I'm going to, I'm going to gracefully shift (laughs) into another topic, but please know that all of us take that very seriously for you. And we would all feel sympathetic. 
Um, so yeah. Um, I'm going to take just a quick breath. Let me get another drink of coffee. I think we can let Twitter go. Um, I'm going to end just that little twofer of stories. Read both of the links. Again, Ars Technica, I love how John Brodkin sources and cites and links to other things. But just, like, anything you can do to put pressure on folks to, like, just go somewhere else. I, I, I know I, I, I promote Mastodon because I really feel like as soon as another media entity replicates some of the business model success of Twitter, it's basically just going to become crappy Twitter all over again. And the only site I see that can avoid that kind of impupification cycle is Mastodon. And as soon as something happens on Mastodon that you don't like, you can take your account and go to another part of Mastodon where they are not going to stand for these types of business shenanigans. You have to rebuild? That sucks. But the more time you spend on meta services, Blue Sky, Twitter, etc., 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 the more you sort of validate a business model that will eventually hurt you again. So, I'm going to take a quick drink of coffee, and then Twitter's dead, and we can just let it be dead and watch the train wreck from a distance. Hey, podcast listeners. I work really hard to find mutually beneficial ways to support production on my various distribution platforms. Instead of just running ads on this podcast and hoping they don't annoy you, I want to find products or services that you really will get something out of and that can help fund my production. While I do talk about some of those items in ads throughout this podcast, I've never created one easy-to-view master list of my current partnerships until now. Sorry, I couldn't help myself. If you'd like to help contribute, support production of this podcast and my various videos and reviews, head on over to somegadgetguy.com. At the top, there's going to be a link for support some gadget guy, and you can see what my current partnerships are. At the time this podcast was recorded, in addition to my Patreon, we can hook you up with a $10 voucher for shopping a new OnePlus, save 20% on some one more headphones, sign you up for Google Fi service, Amazon affiliate links, Audible, or you can grab a Mega Pickle coffee mug of your very own. Mmm, savory, delicious Mega Pickles. Head on over to SomeGadgetGuy.com, support banner on the top right-hand side of my website, and hopefully you find something cool, something you like, while also kicking me a little extra scratch. Oh, Dr. Claw, I wish. Um, Elon telling the advertisers to go F themselves in response to Twitter's adpocalypse was the final step of impupification. I feel there are so many more steps of impupification that uh, Twitter will be uh, devolving and descending through. So many more circles of heck. <laughs> All right. Um, moving right along. In other, excuse me, in other impupification news, this one blindsided me and I was so sad to see it. But then I realized this is an app that I really haven't interacted with in a while. Um, uh, let me let me let me get into screen share here. This is coming by way of Petapixel. Also, hold on one second. I just gotta I I, I just gotta chime back in. I wasn't an uh, 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 I wasn't an ardent reader of Petapixel in the past. My main sort of conduit to a lot of photography news was DP Review, and we all know what kind of went down with Amazon and DP Review and cutting their main hosts from their YouTube channel. 
And then those hosts went to Petapixel. And I actually haven't been watching a lot of their videos, but they produce a really fun weekly photography podcast. And the Petapixel podcast has gotten really good. I think they're a little Apple crazy because they love, like, anytime someone brings up editing, it's like, oh, and did you know that MacBooks are quieter than Windows laptops? But once you get over the Apple stuff, like, the rest of their photography commentary is fantastic. So it's it's a lot of camaraderie. I think they've got a great rapport. That is a, a high recommendation for me. Um, this year they started off this podcast. That has led me to kind of checking out their site a little more frequently, which is where I caught this story. And this one is just sort of a gutting example of the impupification business cycle. Filmic's entire staff laid off by parent company Bending Spoons. Filmic was recently acquired um, by another entity. Filmic is the camera app that a lot of us have turned to. It's a third-party camera app. It's supposed to give you much better uh, professional-grade controls. It was clutch on iPhones, where Apple still has not really given you a lot to... um, uh, to sort of control the look of your photos and videos. So people would turn to third-party apps, and Filmic was the gold standard. Worked with high degree but varying success on a variety of Android phones just because of how much more complicated it is to support all the different Android phones. But it was one of those apps that was an immediate install on any new phone I would test. I just wanted to see how well did it play with Filmic and could Filmic update it. New camera sensors or new APIs... Filmic was chef's kiss. But they were recently acquired. So, uh, let me get this here. Uh, Bending Spoons confirmed Petapixel's report. This is an update. I can confirm that a layoff performed in November saw all 22 members of the original Filmic team depart. The Filmic product has now been fully integrated into the Bending Spoons platform. Development of the product will continue with a dedicated team at Bending Spoons focusing on it. Having worked alongside the original team since the acquisition, the new team possesses the necessary knowledge to ensure a seamless user experience. But there really haven't been any significant updates. There was a major new update where Bending Spoons was trying to turn this camera app into more of a subscription service. Here in the chat, does anyone need the app that controls the camera on your phone to be something you pay for monthly? Is anyone looking at the variety of value-added additional services to something like Filmic, like you get better online web uploading support. Did anyone want that? Was anyone thinking Filmic is so good, I'm going to pay for this monthly? (laughs) Coppa Cash is leaving zeros in the chat. (laughs) Dave Burns. So they exported the new teams overseas where the developers have lower standards and smaller costs. Got it. They, they rolled out the new major redesign in the update, and there hasn't been a whole lot of additional functionality added. Filmic used to be the app Apple would show off for new photography features on the iPhone. If you remember the iPhone 11 Pro launch, where they showed multi-camera type uh, 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 control surfaces, and they showed like all the amazing things you can do with this new Pro iPhone A lot of that functionality came because of Filmic, not because of Apple. And now, Filmic doesn't even do... uh, They they don't support um, the external SSD option 
on uh, so now on the newest iPhone you can plug in because of USB C because Lightning connectors were garbage. Um, now that they have USB C on the iPhone Pros, you can plug in an SSD and use that as direct storage for the camera app. Filmic isn't even supporting those newer features on on iPhones. So whatever they're doing, whatever development is supposedly taking place right here, Filmic has kind of been locked in place since that transition to this new business model. And I have not bothered to install it since. I I genuinely don't know what Filmic looks like or operates like today. As soon as I saw that, like, there was going to be this sort of half-hearted token effort for a Filmic Classic... I kind of gave up, and so I've been split. Um, I use Motion Cam and whatever it is. It's a terrible app name, but it's like MC24 FPSC Pro, something like that. Um, that that those are the third-party camera apps that I'll now install on new phones just to see what kind of support we get with Android APIs. But you know, Filmic kind of kind of broke me again. Yet another like Twitter. You know, I'm just kind of gutted. You got rid of the original team. I have zero confidence in the future of that uh, of of that service now. In the future of that app, this business model makes no sense to me. Uh, LumaFusion is one of the best video editing apps available for anyone, desktop or mobile or tablet. It's just a really good video editor, and it's thirty bucks. And then you never spend another dime on the core functionality of the app. That's incredible. In the sea of every other app trying to be a monthly service that, that you know, nickel and dimes your way through your, your wallet. That's what I need a camera app to be. <laughs> a camera app should not be a monthly subscription. It's so silly. Um, doo, doo, doo. Barry Johnson. Thanks, Filmic. This is appreciated. Not. See what he did there? He, he got y'all set up, and then he was like, psych. <laughs> oh, murder. Okay, so this is this is a pretty good comment. And thank you for the name of the actual app that I stumbled on. Filmic UI was way too gimmicky for me. I used professional video cameras, and that UI was just a toy. I'm now using mostly MC Pro 24 FPS for the features it allows, like clean HDMI output. Thank you. I could not remember the name of that app. And I see, and this is why I like doing my podcast. I did not know. I did not know that MC Pro 24 FPS had clean HDMI output. So now I kind of want to see how well or how stable that might be. Like if I plug my Xiaomi into my, uh, my external monitor, my, my little Atomos, I wonder if that footage would look good. <laughs> Uh, Gabaletta, I guess, I don't know. Uh, didn't DP Review get acquired by Gear Patrol and they stayed alive? I know, the, there again, there is a functional site called DP Review and there was a lot of chatter about how to maintain sort of the, the forums and keep all of that data alive. And yes, I think they're now owned and operated by Gear Patrol, but I just genuinely haven't gone back. It's so funny how, and we're going to talk about Reddit here in just a, a bit too, a confidence-shaking business move kind of kills what relationship I have with a site or a service. And I am so reluctant to go back because I never feel like if I spend time investing in your content and getting a feel for your editorial and appreciating what you do, what's to say that you don't pull the rug out from under me again? 
in another year. It's kind of like what happened with um, with uh, that game engine, Unity. Like, developers aren't flocking back just because you walked back a terrible business move. You've just shown that you're capable of terrible business moves, so there's no confidence that you won't do that again at some point. Um... <laughs> Go Starscream. BMW is going to keep coming back to that. Sounds sounds similar to how BMW wanted to make the built-in heated seats a monthly subscription. Um, every automaker is looking at, well, how can I charge you for the basic functionality that I uh, you've already paid for in the automobile? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Gormlord. <laughs> <clears throat> Gormlords here. It's genius, Juan, because you don't have to pay for the months you don't want to use your camera. It's really for your benefit. <laughs> that is an untapped business model right there, Gormlord. I mean, why, why pay for the full functionality of your camera if, you know, there are weeks you go and don't use your camera, then it's like you wasted your money. So really, you should only pay for your camera when you're using your camera. Oh, man. Oh, Fat Produce, we're coming up on that right now. That's, that's, that's our transition right there. Uh, Fat Produce, this is why I'm ruthlessly building up my Plex library to take back my right to stream content I actually own. I've said this before, and again, I keep pointing... Oh, right there, right there. You can see it actually a little clearer. My, my like stack of Blu-rays and stuff that I've ripped from a Plex. Um, this was also a rough... A rough week for Sony and the PlayStation brand as they lost a major content deal. And this is coming by way of Kotaku, written up by Ethan Ga- Gotch. Gatch? Gak? Ooh, if it's Gok, it's kind of like a Klingon delicacy. Uh, PlayStation to delete a ton of TV shows users already paid for. Sony says that Mythbusters and more Discovery TV shows are going away whether you bought them or not. So basically, just because of all of the recent shenanigans with Discovery and HBO and Max and all these other streaming services and the content libraries that they license, if you purchased these shows on PlayStation, um, all of those licenses are gone and that content is just going to disappear from your catalog. And it's yet another example. We saw this hit, um, we saw this hit really hard in Australia as, again, every region has different licensing agreements for content. Um, But we've seen this play out on Apple, on Google, and now we're watching all of the streaming services sort of battle what content lives on what streaming platform. It's made it really frustrating where you open up Netflix and they've started adding those little banners like, this title will be leaving soon. And you're like, okay, well, there's there's no consistency and there's no foundation. And it makes me actually use Netflix a lot less because I can't count on what content. Oh, you know, that's cool. I want to watch that later, but it might be gone in a week. You're not, you're not negging me into watching it right now. Like if it's a movie, it's a dark drama. My daughter's awake. Like I'm going to go play with my daughter. I'd rather play with Barbies than watch this stupid movie on your platform. And if it's gone in a week, then I'll find some alternative to, to watching it when and how and where I want to watch it. But like Andrew was saying, Fat Produce was saying, um, the only stability you have now 
is if you take the time and effort to source some copy of it, my preferred way is actually going old school. I have a Blu-ray drive in my big old hunkin' workstation, and I know it's still technically a violation of the DMCA to circumvent copy protection, but I own the discs, I put the disc in my computer, and then it shows up on a software-run server that I can access, and I control, and I have security over, and it's on a big old bucket of hard drives. It is in my circle protected of streamable content. And if it's something I really, really want to watch, I am happy to expend the money and support that. I've done the same with music for a while. Uh, I always wished that physical formats like SACD had kind of taken off a bit more. I've got all these amazing amps and DACs and headphone equipment and all this high-res gear and I would be supporting artists more directly by just going and buying their music and keeping a digital copy of it in FLAC for my own listening. I'm not looking to distribute. I just want the best possible experience that I can own. And especially from when I was paying for Netflix in 4K, I don't know what they're doing with compression. Um, I know it's about bandwidth, but you just pop in a movie and it comes off the Blu-ray and the quality and the fidelity is just so much better. And I shouldn't be able to notice that stuff. But we went from paying for the 4K streaming service on Netflix down to the 720p streaming service. And it wasn't that bad. But if I go from a 4K Blu-ray down to a 720p rip of the same movie, boy howdy, is that way more noticeable. (laughs) It's so much worse. So, you know, I don't want to completely recommend you circumvent the capitalism. I am sure there are other resources and other ways to acquire this content and not spend a dime. But I do take my role as an advocate for preservation a little seriously. I have DVDs in my movie collection that will never see um, a proper remaster or a cleanup or, you know, like a really good 4K rip. There are movies that have essentially vanished that I feel are culturally significant. They're really important films, but they are increasingly difficult to find. And where they might pop up occasionally on some kind of streaming catalog I know they will never get the attention, the effort, or the energy they deserve to get a proper restoration, a proper, uh, you know, a new film scan, and that makes me really sad. I feel like the only way to kind of combat that is to look at the trends on, did a company make an effort to restore and complete and, and, and put out a really high-quality product? Um, I think a good example would be, I can't remember the name of the channel. Someone, please, if you know what I'm talking about, there's a YouTuber who did a whole breakdown on all of the different variations of the Dragon Ball DVDs and Blu-rays, sort of rating them for image quality and sound quality and dub quality. And at, like at the end of this, like I think it's like an hour-long video. At the end of this, they're also saying like there's this new trend in the EU. There's a French version of these Dragon Ball Blu-rays that is incredible. 
but it takes so much time, money, and effort to produce a higher quality version of this media. And, and that's kind of the same thing that I see. Like, I, I remember, I want to say it was RoboCop. Just as Blu-rays were getting hot, there was a Blu-ray uh, film transfer of RoboCop that was hot garbage. And if you had the DVD, the standard definition DVD of RoboCop, it was better quality. It was higher fidelity than the Blu-ray um, that they uh, originally put out. I'm putting this in there, and again, someone please correct me, but it, I, I, my brain is Swiss cheese right now. I can't remember if it was RoboCop. But a more recent 4K rip of B RoboCop looks really good and preserves a lot of that image, the fidelity, and the sound. And like you can tell they went back through and they cleaned up. They, they did a better job cleaning up that film print. That costs money. That, that, that's a function of our, of our economy. That's a function of our media industry. So wherever possible, if I hear, oh, this film's coming out and it got an amazing transfer. I've got The Omen, the, blue, the, the most current Blu-ray. It's only 1080p. It bothers me to say it's, it's built off of a 4K rip of the original film print. And you're like, okay, but you gave me a 1080p version. But that 1080p version is really good. It is such a good transfer of the omen and i love that movie and i kind of hope that you know because that blu-ray set seems to have sold okay in the world that doesn't buy shiny spinning discs anymore that maybe we'll get the 4k version of that at some point too so again i completely appreciate why some people go about sourcing and acquiring content and media the way they do i'm just going to offer the earnest heartfelt uh plea that if there's something that you know this is a movie or a TV show that you genuinely cannot live without. Check out the prices on a Blu-ray. Check out the prices on, on a spinning disc and just own it and, and just have it forever. Keep a little mini library. Don't do what we did like with VHS and DVD where I had a warehouse of DVDs. Like for a while, my living room looked like one of the offices on Red Letter Media and it was just floor to ceiling cases jewel cases of of content and 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 cheap discs that i would buy at like walmart at 2 a.m because i had insomnia and i would go home and watch a terrible movie don't do that but if it's something key it's one of those like genre defining or one of those amazing media experiences and you just want to hold it you want to know at any time no matter what if the internet disappears tomorrow or we face nuclear calamity, you can pick up this shiny plastic disc and you can have that movie. Consider buying a few of your key pieces. <laughs> Just showing that there's an interest in maintaining that kind of media. Uh... Fat Produce, I'm typically okay with just having DVD quality animated content. I have kind of become at least a 1080p snob. When I'm when I'm refilling, you know, replacing my old media collection, if I can go 4K, and I know it's a good 4K transfer, I'm I'm going immediately to 4K. But um, it it I can't often go back to DVD. The only the only times I go back to my DVD rips is when there's genuinely no other source for that content, and that that's what makes me sad. Is like this is a movie that deserved a 1080p rip, but we don't get that. Dave Burns, we need to realize now as better compression tech comes out, we won't get better quality. It will just get worse slower as these streamers squeeze every possible dime from their customers. So I feel that resolution is yet another just kind of buzz term 
because you can have 4K and garbage quality. You can have 1080p and amazing quality. So yeah, I'm kind of with you. It's it, The compression tech is actually getting better. I mean, when we see what where we've gone from H.264 to H.265, when we look at the new AV1 codecs, when we look at all of these ways that we can squish data and unpack it on the other side, I think that's great. But after a point, you still need to send data. And so I feel like a lot of these things like, hey, we're squishing and this is 4K, isn't that amazing? But it doesn't look great because you're trying to squeeze it past what that codec is capable of unpacking for a near lossless experience. My DVD, no, 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 my 4K, I'm trying to do the math in my head, sorry, this is terrible podcasting. Um, I do not save the full Blu-ray. I squish the Blu-ray down with HEVC compression um, and I pack it into a little MKV uh, file so that I can also maintain um, subtitles and uh, alternate audio tracks. And I try to save the alternate audio tracks in as as high a quality as as I can for sort of repacking that container. A 4K Blu-ray rip the way that I've, I've been squishing them can be between 15 and 20 gig um, for, for an average feature length, you know, two, two and a half hour movie. That's a pretty big file, um, but it's easily sustainable on my home network. And that's the vast majority of what I watch is, is still at home. But I did build the Miniplex front end, the, the, the mini PC that I'm using for Plex right now so that I can... Uh, I can transcode in real time more uh, uh, efficiently. But man, those mini PCs trying to chew up 4K HEVC, sometimes 4K HEVC HDR, (laughs) lots of alphabet soup there. Um, I do not believe for a second that when you're streaming on the web that you're getting 15 to 20 gig of data on a 4K stream from like Amazon or Netflix or Disney or something like that. So whatever they're doing to try and compress that data, it is definitely lossier than what I'm doing to archive a Blu-ray here on my own. Um, it doesn't look as good. It just doesn't look as good. The one that, the one that really sealed that for me was uh, The Dark Knight. So if, if this has changed please let me know that there's a streaming service that now does it properly. But on the Dark Knight Blu-ray, it changes aspect ratio slightly. So it's a more cinema-wide in uh, conversation and dialogue, and then in action, that was shot in IMAX, and it does properly fill the full 16 by 9 TV. It's not the same view that we got in theaters, where that was a much squarer image frame because it was shot in IMAX, Um, but it looks better. It just looks better off the Blu-ray. And I love when you see that pop open and you're seeing the action and just, it's so beautiful. When you need to flip a semi, you just need to flip a semi. Um, But for the longest time, none of the streaming services would extend the aspect ratio. It was all cinema-wide. So you lost even more of the frame than you lost on the Blu-ray. And it's that kind of stuff. you, You might not care, but when you see that open up and you see just, oh, that looks so good, 
that's what makes me sad is I, I, I'm not as much of a, an auteur supporter. Like I don't believe in the current mission of, of uh, what's his face, Christopher Nolan to say like, oh, well, the proper way to watch Oppenheimer is on this sort of old school IMAX delivery system. And you're like, cool. You made a movie for three movie theaters in the United States. How about you make a movie that everyone can appreciate at their own local cinema? And, and then you can add some bells and whistles for people that can afford to trek out to a proper IMAX screen. I'm not that far gone. <laughs> but when it comes to something like The Dark Knight, and you can see, and it's palpable, like it is, it is noticeable. I'm watching it from the Blu-ray. This looks fantastic. I'm watching it from, I forget what streamer it was on. I think it was HBO Max was the last time I watched it. And you're like, this doesn't look as good. It doesn't look as good. I don't care what you tell me. It looks bad. <laughs> Oh, sorry, I almost, like, choked on my coffee there. Um, sorry, I'm way behind on this chat here. <laughs> We're, some people are talking about MCU and Infinity Stones. Dave Burns apparently has a second head. Fat Produce, I'm a snob about only encoding to MKVH.265. <laughs> Uh, from McCorkran, anyone else getting buffered on YouTube seems to be working fine on Twitch. Uh, YouTube was not working this morning. I have no idea what's going on with the YouTube side. But if you're on the YouTube side and you catch this little piece of the podcast, join us on the Twitch. Seems to be playing out just fine on the Twitch. From Cake Batter, given the low price of storage, I never compress video or audio of ripped 4K or 1080p Blu-ray, but I don't rip any extra content. So, I have gotten to a point where I feel 4K HEVC in an MKV container is about a third the size, and I haven't found any appreciable loss that I can detect with my eyes, and I'm an audio guy, not a video guy. So take my recommendation with a giant rock of salt. But in my unlearned visual assessment of media quality, it's gotten good enough that I am okay whittling back and saving about a third of the total uncompressed data in a format that I think displays it well. That's totally on me. But when I built my NOS, I built it for work. So the majority of what I'm putting on that NOS has to be all of my archived 4K video content and all of my video content going back to when I started producing online. I've got stuff going all the way back to 2007. On top of also, like, I also use it to piggyback some of the backup for our family photos and videos. So I can't just dedicate solely to media, but when I upgraded my NAS, I did have a stack of 10 terabyte drives and I'm thinking I just might need to build a second NAS and have one for, like, for work and then have a second for fun and then have multiple mini PCs all controlling the flow of data. Ha-ha! Oh, I'm running a server farm. Wee! <laughs> <laughs> 
Oh, Dave Burns, you and me both. I can't wait for us to start getting cinema IMAX TVs that are 4x3, but with 8K resolution. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> oh, Nick Gay. Uh, man, you said 15 to 20 gigabytes compressed. I'm good with one gig files. <laughs> I can't. Oh, I can't. I, I I tried really squishing as far as I could go, and you know, for for whatever the total size of a Blu-ray might be, once I started pushing down into like ten gig rips, that's when I could start seeing. See, it's little things like HEVC does a much better job of compressing visual data uh, than than H.264 did, but once you push beyond a certain uh, level it doesn't keep consistent block sizes. So how it crushes in information per frame changes um, with whatever is sort of detected in the frame to be more valuable information. I'm doing a terrible job of explaining this. But once you push below a certain threshold, things like film grain get really gnarly. And I love seeing... So, so for example, take a movie like Shaun of the Dead. And if you've watched Shaun of the Dead like on a phone screen, you might not notice this as readily. But when you blow up Shaun of the Dead to a nicely sized TV, that wasn't high budget filmmaking. It was a big, healthy budget for the filmmakers. But that isn't like an example of, you know, like a studio spending a ton of money on a film. And so the film stock that they're shooting that on isn't of the highest quality. And you can kind of see it. There are some shots that are shot local, and then there are some uh, inserts that were shot on a soundstage. Especially there's the one where he kind of walks up the little kid's slide and walks back down again. You can see a very clear difference in the quality of those two shots on Blu-ray. <laughs> when, you, when you descend past a certain point, all of that image data, all of that clarity, all of that film grain, the texture, the look, the feel, just kind of gets smeared out on the screen. And so I've kind of found, like, I can push this pretty low, but once I push beyond that, and it's to me it's kind of at that 10 to 15 gig barrier. Once I try and squish it more than that, I don't, it just doesn't look good. It just, it, it gets real, like, gooey real smeary and it kind of can sometimes have a cartoony aspect as data is smeared out but then it's still trying hevc is trying to maintain fidelity on whatever might be the most important part of the frame and it's just not good so unfortunately i know what you mean man like you want a movie you want a whole collection got an archive of films you want to keep them as small as possible i totally understand that but if you just buy a real big hard drive, you can kind of expand a bit more. <laughs> yeah, and Dave, exactly that. I, I'm actually going to swap out the mini PCs because of this. Uh, Dave says, what's crazy is those high-end mini PCs with eight cores from AMD are pretty good at software compression while you're not doing anything. So not only... Um, uh, not only are they good at the software side of that, but when you can spend $400 on a box that outperforms a Mac Mini with an M2 with 32 gigs of RAM, and it's got a proper Radeon GPU in there, the hardware 
is supporting a lot of compression and transcoding. So I have one of those really, really inexpensive Celerons running the front end of my Plex. And I think I'm just going to swap it all out and move over to one of those AMD machines instead. Because they're screamers. What I want to do is make sure I can properly support like a Linux build, full Docker support, really, really do it right. Not just, I got a Windows box and shoved it into my bookcase. Um, but yeah, it's... Uh, Pretty great. <laughs> Ooh, Nick. That's kind of a fun idea. Do you think you can do the easy NAS solution with an 8CX Gen 3? Um, I don't know. You know, I mean, like, in the way that I did the Celeron, as long as it's... It was just Windows. I, I actually think that could work. I am honestly not sure how the transcoding would work on an Adreno C, uh, GPU. Nick, that is a fun idea that I think I might need to play with. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Dave, you're getting dirty. Dave's in the chat just getting real dirty. So who wants to talk about a little bit more impupification? Uh, because I, I was I was real disappointed to uh, to catch this. So first of all, this is just hilarious corporate timing. Um, everybody has been posting their Spotify end of the year. What do they call it? Spotify Rewind or Spotify What You Did? Spotify, we're watching you, and now you can tell all your friends about your music tastes. I, I don't know, whatever it is. The Spotify recap that you get. I'm not on Spotify anymore. I've really given up on waiting for Spotify to support people who, like me who appreciate higher quality audio files. <clears throat> but um, first of all, that, that's been going... Uh, people have been sharing their end-of-year Spotify uh, wrapped. Thank you, Steve. The wrap-up, T-Bubs. Um, so they're wrap-ups. So that, that's, that's big advertising for Spotify. Spotify loves that. Um, I was in a conversation on threads with someone who was kind of talking about artists' compensation and some of the problems with Spotify. And at the same time, I just started watching the Spotify show on Netflix. Uh, funnily enough, as we were just ch chatting about how much I don't like streaming services, it was kind of an interesting show, just seeing like where Spotify came from and the kind of deals they made with the uh, the record labels and how artists are absolutely not getting compensated for their work appropriately. And then this comes out where Spotify made money, but not enough money. This is written up by Daniel Thomas at the Financial Times and reposted on Ars Technica. Spotify to lay off 17% of its workforce. Spotify will axe almost a fifth of its workforce after warning that economic growth had slowed dramatically and it needed to cut costs as the music streaming giant seeks to turn subscriber growth into consistent profitability. Uh, Daniel Eck uh, chief executive at Spotify, quote, I recognize this will impact a number of individuals who have made valuable contributions. To be blunt, many smart, talented, and hardworking people will be departing us. So here's the problem I have with that. One of the reasons why I left Spotify was political. I feel I need to support businesses that do business in ways that I find ethically 
consistent, they, that they reflect my values. You have a music streaming service. That music streaming service, according to Spotify, hold on, I'm going to pull this up here too. This is Spotify's, uh, uh, what, what do they call it? Growing users and subscribers, their third quarter for 2023. Uh, let me get this back up here. Spotify reports third quarter earnings, uh, monthly active users up 26%. Subscribers grew 16%, total revenue up 11%. Uh, gross margin finished above guidance 26.4%. So on 3.4 billion euro in revenue, uh, they reported 32 million euro for the quarter. So all, they made money. Um, but, you know, if you look at $3.4 billion in revenue to $32 million in profit, that's not a great business model. You've got a lot of costs and overhead, right? So we know that Spotify is paying for licensing deals with the big record labels. So we know a certain chunk of that money is going out there. But we also know that Spotify is one of the lowest paying streaming services for artists. Um, I think Apple pays out more than twice as much per stream as Spotify. I think Amazon is in a similar category. Someone please correct me if I have that wrong. And then I have chosen to do business with Cobuzz uh, because Cobuzz pays out roughly four times more than Apple, which Apple pays out significantly more than Spotify. The last time I caught a proper earnings comparison, I believe Cobuzz was paying out roughly 10 times more per stream to the rights holders than Spotify was. And I feel that is a more appropriate use of my money. But the real thing that pushed me off of using Spotify was their strategy with podcasters. So, they are reporting operating income this last quarter of 32 million euro, right? So the company made money on the backs of, of musicians for all of the plays and ads and everything that supports Spotify, the core functionality of the Spotify service is music. Musicians fuel Spotify. So where do they put that money? Do they put that money back into compensating musicians? <laughs> no, 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 no. Uh, they recently spent $25 million for a podcast, a 12-episode podcast, with the Duke and Duchess of Sussex. So if they made 32 million euro in one quarter, they paid for a 12 episode run of a podcast of the Duke and Duchess. And we're also getting reports that the deal with Joe Rogan might have broken the $200 million barrier. So let's say Spotify had four quarters in a row similar to what they just had. They would be in the ballpark of 120 million euro. So it would take them two years of profitability off of the backs of musicians to cover the nut on the Joe Rogan deal. I don't know about y'all, but that sounds like a terrible business model. And if I were a musician, I would not be looking to support that business model as it takes money out of the coffers of musicians and dumping it into some pretty harebrained schemes for podcasting. Whereas a site like Cobuzz, boy howdy, it is very poor algorithmically. 
the way that you find new music on Cobuzz, not nearly as fancy. Um, and there's no additional function. It's just flack. <laughs> you want the highest possible quality version of the song that you want to listen to? They got it. You got to go look for it. It's not going to be served to you. It's not going to be spoon-fed. You know, airplane in the hangar, mm, find new music. You have to be interested in just kind of going through new releases and finding similar artists. And that, to me, is the fun. It's the joy. I'm kind of open to do whatever I want. I'm not being guided. I, I start with, like, oh, my daughter really liked this track from Dua Lipa. And three hours later, I realize I've consumed the entire catalog of Churches and Purity Ring. Like... I enjoy just kind of being left to my own devices to go and wander. And that's what Cobuzz really appeals to me is that it's not getting in my way. It's not trying to serve me stuff. It's like, hey, cool, listen to us when you want to listen to us. And otherwise, we're just going to stay out of your hair. They put funding behind a small music social media site. So if you're a Cobuzz subscriber, you also get access to Cobuzz Club. Let me tell you, they put a lot less money into Cobuzz Club than Spotify has put into individual podcasts. <laughs> so it's, um, it's pretty great. <laughs> so I am, I am even less impressed with the executive leadership of Mr. Eck. You're cutting your staff. You're dumping tons of money to try and become the de facto standard of podcasting, an open service where anyone can produce their own content, serve it up to their own audience. We do not need and we should not want algorithms ratcheting consumers into what podcasts to listen to. And you're overvaluing the economic reach for your platform. If you're, if you're telling us, if this is accurate to your shareholders, that in one quarter you generated three billion euro in revenue and only made 32 million in profit, you are failing spectacularly in actually revolutionizing the music industry to the lofty goals and terms that you seem to speak of your, your platform. Just a quick interjection here, folks. I love highlighting good work and talented people, producers and writers who deserve more attention. So here's a quick word from someone making cool stuff on the internet, and I hope you check out what they have to offer. Hello, my name is Martin, and I run the Tech Altar YouTube channel. I talk about tech, obviously, but instead of focusing purely on the devices themselves, I mostly analyze the companies, their business and marketing strategies, as well as the industry trends that shape the gadgets we all love. I studied business, I worked for a couple of tech companies like Bobo in China, for example, and I'm building my own tech startup on the side right now, so I really like talking about these topics. And if you enjoy zooming out and trying to see the bigger picture as well, you can find me by searching for Tech Altar, that's A-L-T-A-R on YouTube, and you can also come say hi to me on Twitter as well. Thanks, Juan. So again, I've been in these conversations. I was on this chat with a friend of mine on Threads, and she's a music journalist, and they were talking about fair compensation for performers and how we've all kind of just shrugged off. You just got to do Spotify, I guess. And if you want to support the artist, you can buy something from them directly or shop some merch. But you just got to steal all their music for free, basically. 
and I bring up Cobas, and everyone's like, oh, what does that mean? <laughs> and you're like, you're a music journalist, you should know better. And I can appreciate not having some of the niceties. I totally get it. But for me, this has become something of a badge of honor. Like, I am happy that my music isn't being guided by algorithmic search, where Spotify can sort of influence the popularity of music on their platform and popularity of music on their platform is what gets artists paid. I'm not saying it's payola, but that sounds a lot like a scam. <laughs> like Twitter is a scam. Kind of sounds similar. If you have one part of your business that controls the behavior of your audience and you have another part of your business that says, we pay you based on the popularity of your content, that to me should be an antitrust investigation. So I'm not going back to Spotify anytime soon. I love supporting a music service that, like minimum quality on Cobuzz, I, I, I have found very few tracks that were not CD quality or higher. The vast majority of, of the platform is at least CD quality. The lowest quality option to stream on Cobuzz is the same as the highest quality option that you can stream on Spotify Premium at the time that this podcast was recorded. And there is so much more that is in even higher res, like 24-bit. Uh, and I've seen tracks 24-192 on Cobuzz. If an artist has uploaded the highest possible quality, there is a version of that track on Cobuzz that you can stream for yourself, and it's awesome. So, uh, you know, while I'm sitting here on Mastodon and trying to use Lemmy and listening to my music on Cobuzz, I'm like farther and farther and farther away from the more popular areas of the internet. And it's kind of nice. I enjoy it. It's, it's pretty great. <laughs> oh, Nick Fell. I actually haven't tried this out. I, I've heard about this before, but I, I haven't. Um, if you want the Spotify radio experience from Cobuzz, you need Rune 2, and now you're pay paying nearly $30 a month. So I don't want the Spotify radio experience. I know, like, the whole, like, AI DJ thing is kind of becoming a bit more popular, and that seems nifty, but I don't want someone, like, interrupting tracks and stuff. And as soon as, like, I go through a playlist on Cobuzz, it tries to find some alternative like like so there's a setting in the Cobuzz app this works so poorly but it's interesting I've got a playlist of my daughter's favorite music and it's the the criteria was female singers and they need to be fun songs to belt while we're stuck in traffic pop tracks awesome as soon as we eclipse that that playlist Cobuzz looks at that playlist and just tries to find similar artists to what we've listened to it's not great, but we've we found a few other singer songwriter uh, female musicians that we've enjoyed, and so we kind of add those to the playlist, and it sort of expands from there. I have felt no desire to have anything more carefully cultivated or al algorithmically generated than that. And as soon as we find a few more things, it does kind of open up. So that's what I was saying. Like my daughter was digging on this Dua Lipa track, and we went down a, a just like a deep dive on like even smaller and smaller and smaller indie musicians that were of similar sort of pop and electronica. And that to me is fun. Like a lot of it we didn't like. And then we found churches and you're like, Oh, this is amazing. And then from churches, we found purity ring. Oh, this is amazing. 
And, and that to me was more organically earned interaction than just, if you like these artists, we'll play this for you. And you don't have to cultivate anything with your own playlist. And so I haven't really had any burning desire to check out Rune because it seems like it'd be paying more to take out some of the fun that we've had in finding the music that we listen to. Well, and Ricardo, this is another thing that I have a problem with with YouTube. As soon as algorithms get involved, your behavior matters a lot. Ricardo says, not just that, they actively push questionable content. I made the mistake of checking one Megyn Kelly podcast, and then I got inundated of horrible right-wing media that I could not remove. And that is all a function of what's going to keep you angry. If you're miserable, you'll actually spend more time on a site or a social media service. And I bet you, in terms of advertising dollars, the right-wing stuff is probably getting paid out heavier and higher these days because of all the outrage traffic that it generates. So it only takes one, and then it completely changes your relationship with the algorithm. There are no podcasts on Cobuzz, so I've never made that misstep, and I've never made that mistake, and even when I do, like... I love classic Dolly Parton. I love old-school banjo country. Not modern hip-hop, but, like, the classic stuff. And now when I get recommendations, like, oh, this is sort of alt-country that I never would have found on my own. And it's buried. <laughs> you know, this is not, you know, like, super commercial or popular stuff. Those kinds of experiences have been working out great for me on Cobuzz. Oh, I see what you're saying, Nick Fowl. I, I, I get you, I get you. I'm not trying to pick on you for wanting to have that on Rune. I'm just saying, for me, I like the walking through a record store experience of buying music, and that's not what algorithms are. Let me let me read Nick's follow-up comments here. Kobo's radio is terrible. Rune is actually really good. But I do like the experience of listening to radio based on my likes. Pandora was great until the ad frequency ruined it. It's always fun when I forget to turn off flag streaming on mobile networks and it tries to send me a 500 megabyte song over LTE because it's 24192. <laughs> and I've had that pain too. Um, you really do. And again, the Cobuzz app is not helpful in the slightest, but you do need to go into those settings, go two layers deep, streaming behavior on LTE. Only stream the MP3s. <laughs> It's hilarious. But Cobuzz is one of those services where I put together the playlist, save it on the device, then I leave, but I have double and triple checked that when it starts streaming, it should be falling back to MP3. <laughs> so anyway, Spotify, what are you doing? You, you control a ridiculous quantity of the streaming market and you're not making any money. So this is all to the uh, chagrin and this is all to the detriment of musicians and performers that are actually funding. Big headlines, right? Taylor Swift is gonna make $100 million in 2023 off of her streams on Spotify. So let's just check here real quick. Hmm. I've got a calculator. Let's see, 100 million. Uh, that's 1,000, 10, 100,000, a million, 100 million. Um, divide by point, uh, whoops, let's say 0. 
So to get $100 million out of Spotify, you're looking at 25 billion streams. I don't know. I just don't think that seems like a super great business model. <laughs> if I were an artist, not at the caliber of a Taylor Swift, and I wanted to have a relationship with, um, with my audience, I don't, I don't think that'd be it. <laughs> oh, Gormlord. I'm glad I'm not an audiophile. I couldn't afford it. I'm telling you, man. Find a just a, a good little set of IEM earbuds or over-ear headphones. They don't have to be expensive. Get yourself a decent little DAC. Get yourself a little FIO or an iFi or uh, was it Shanling? Just something kind of fun, and it it just brightens up everything. Don't, don't don't go collecting gear like people like me. Don't do that. Don't have like, these are my favorite headphones to listen to this one singer-songwriter, but I obviously need these other headphones if I want to listen to OK Go. Don't do that. That's, that's the mistake. But I don't know, for less than a pair of AirPod Pros, you can, you, oh, it, you can come up with something delicious and something that is tailor-fit to your listening, and, and it's kind of remarkable. So yeah. Go go in with restraint. <laughs> don't don't be like Juan. So uh, we actually have a lot more um, articles and stuff to get through. Um, I, I was going to try and spend a little bit more time on this, but I genuinely haven't been on Reddit since they did their API crackdown. Um, I shuttered my subreddit, so reddit.com slash r slash glowing rectangles. I, I haven't brought it back. I don't feel anything has changed, and I don't want to reward inter- Reddit with interaction and with content. That fundamentally, my subreddit was an example of what you can build on Reddit using the tools that Reddit has tried to vilify and try to remove from their platform. So why would I go back? Um, their big thing is they're going to do a redesign. So their Reddit mascot, Snoo, is getting a 3D render, and the new logo is, like, bright orange with white letters. And they're not doing anything for the users. They're not bringing any better tools to the mods. All of the things that we've been asking for, when we lost all of those great tools in third-party apps to help manage our communities... Reddit still really hasn't replaced any of that functionality, but they're spending a lot of money to do a redesign. Hey, guys, isn't Reddit fun and orange now? Isn't that great? It's so hip and orange. Don't you love it's It's brighter now. Isn't that? Oh, that's so cool. So now, obligatory F-spez. You're you're slower burning your way through terrible Twitter-style business decisions, and I see no reason to go back. And it makes me really sad. The only times I've I've ended up on Reddit are when I'm looking for a, a solution to a very specific problem, and there's like an archived post from like three years ago that shows up in a Google search or a Bing search, and then I end up on Reddit for a couple minutes. And genuinely nothing else. I haven't tried interacting. I don't post on subreddits anymore. I don't comment on subreddits anymore. Just like with Twitter, the vast majority of my interactions are happening on other places, on other sites. And it breaks my heart. I, I just, it kills me that, that this is what this site has become. 
it's a bummer. It makes me really sad. But they're making it all fun and bright and orange now. Oh my gosh. It's all these people. All those those nerds that were posting content and managing all of the communities on our site. Ugh. Why would we want to do anything to help them? But regular users, they're dumb. They like orange. <laughs> yeah, T-Bubs. I mean, that's kind of like, that's kind of the situation, but... Um, T-Bub says it's too bad with Reddit. It's still one of the best places to find solutions to different problems with apps and with anything. Um, you can find all kinds of really great content on there and it's all archived. So I end up on Reddit occasionally, but I am not logging in. I'm not updating and I'm not contributing anything to the site anymore. And I seriously doubt we'll see any significant change in their corporate behavior to encourage me to come back. That, that is fundamentally now dead. And the last, the few times that I have ended up on my old front page again, it is still a wasteland of garbage content from the subreddits that I used to follow that were awesome. And like, why? Why would I work to make your site better if you're just going to pull out the rug from under me again in the future? I, it just, again, there's no confidence in the executive leadership at... at uh, at Reddit anymore. <laughs> oh, sorry. I mean, there's just like a bunch of like follow-ups and stuff like that. Um, so Al Zavakli, uh, I think for under $400, one can get a pretty awesome audio file setup. Go used and it's even less. Um, I don't know. I kind of feel like once you get to sub 300, you're still in really good shape. You might need to play around and experiment with some of the CCA and KZ earbuds. Um, the, the Ecos also, they can get a little pricey, but when we're talking about $100 earbuds with replaceable cables, you're in good shape. And then just go and get you something like a FIO BTR5 Gen 2. I, I feel like that is supremely high quality music listening, all of the support for the, the more recent Bluetooth codecs like LDAC and the new Aptex Adaptive, and you can go plug, you can go uh, wired on the BTR5, and you would have support for 3.5 millimeter and balanced connections, so unbalanced and balanced. Um, so you would have Bluetooth and cabled playback covered. Yeah, I think that's easily sub $300, and that would sound awesome, but... The thing that would suck is you do need to spend a little time finding the right earbud solution that'll make you happy. So, like, if you like CCA's tuning, but you don't like how bright, you know, their their quad drivers can get, maybe you need to go into KZ and get more of their deep V tuning and then get something with a basier um, dynamic driver. That's where you end up burning a little bit of cash. But even then, $50 earbuds, $150 Portable DAC, 200 bucks. I think you could do real well. But that's dirty, Al. Uh, unless you're easy, and then it's $20,000. <laughs> I feel like Easy's listening isn't 20K. I feel it's his recording that's getting him into trouble. And I keep encouraging him to buy ever increasingly expensive microphones. So I'm hoping at some point, Easy's going to show up with like a gold plated Neumann U87 AI. And I'm going to like, I'm going to cackle. I'm going to laugh so hard because I've been working him. You need to get the anniversary edition Neumann. 
<laughs> oh, and Aditya, absolutely. Sorry, I mean, I'm not to say that these are the only brands, but Aditya is, is on point two. Truth Ear are making some crazy good sounding stuff for under $90. So I have the most experience with brands like KZ, CCA, they're kind of cousins, and uh, um, uh, what was the other one? Eco. So those, those are some of the go-tos for me. Like, I, I uh, do I have it here on my desk or did I put it back in my backpack? I don't want to completely stop the whole podcast to look for one of my headphone bags. But the other company that I really like is Mi Audio. And so if you go to the Mi Audio Pro Gear, they do get expensive. Like the Mi Audio Quad Drivers, I don't know that they're worth 200 but their triples are phenomenal if you want something that's boosted a little in the mids. So I go to their triple drivers frequently, and uh, this podcast not brought to you by me audio, but I spent the money to get my ears molded so that I could have custom molded IEMs on their triple drivers. This is a kind of an expensive little pouch right here with uh, scanned ear tips and uh, triple driver earbuds. But the other ones that they had were Pinnacle. So me audio had a pair of earbuds called the Pinnacle which are a little lean. I do need to hit them with just a little low mid uh, for them to kind of flesh out, but these are balanced connector. So a little balanced connector, earbuds, um, really good. Not reference grade, but um, well, I think they do try to push them as like you could listen for fun and listen for work. But I keep this in, a, in an old Shure IEM pouch with my little BTR5. And as a backup, um, because you can't always use balanced connectors with other devices very easily, I keep a little pair of Ecos in there too. So I can move back and forth between listening for fun and listening for work off of one portable DAC. This bag right here is less than the price of AirPods Max. That is expensive, but I have multiple listening uh, devices in here. And I also keep like a backup dongle DAC in here also. Everything in here is probably $100 less than AirPods Max. And the quality is delicious. I very much enjoy what my little Shure pouch can do. Toss it into my backpack. I always have it ready to go. So don't go auto audiophile just for the sake of going audiophile. Find a few things that you like and then just enjoy what they can bring to your music, uh, uh, music listening experience. It's... It's, it's a lot of fun. It really is. Oh, Lampros. Soundcores are always great. Have any opinions on Soundcore Life Q35? Um, I have more, expen uh, more experience with One Mores, uh, but my general take is I think One More has a slightly more color colorful curve to their tuning, and I, I really push Soundcore hard when I hear folks like, they want to focus on something a little more rumbly, a little bassier. Soundcore's rumble is so fun. Um, but again, that's like the out-of-the-box tuning, and either brand responds pretty well if you want to back off some of Soundcore's low end or if you want to lift some of One More's low end. To me, they're almost tradable companies. Um, I like the headband a little bit better on Soundcore cans. Uh, the One More Sono Flow are a little creaky. So like if I'm wearing the Sono Flow and I'm eating, the muscles in my head can kind of creak the headband, but it's still not as bad as, what was that headphone? The Bear Dynamic Lagoon. The Lagoons 
incredible sound quality, but like if you did not hold perfectly still while listening, that headband just crankled in your ears with the slightest of little gestures. And mine were okay, but then they took a drop off the couch. So from like a foot, you know, like a foot and a half off the ground onto carpet, and then all I could hear was kinkle, 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 kinkle. With every little movement of my head, and it drove me insane as someone who does suffer a touch of the misophonia. Boy, that was bad sound. Um, the the sono flow are not that bad, but they are crinklier than the sound core, which I feel the sound core are also not quite as well pieced together as like the XM5s. So you go, you jump to like the Sony's. I feel there was a reason why Sony did not go with the fully collapsible design of the XM4, and in part, it was to help minimize some of the headband and movement and usage noise on that headphone. But then I, I start getting into like the really exotic stuff. So like, if you want something open ear, I've been really digging the Cineaptics. You can go big old honking ribbon drivers, and for two hundred bucks, it is the most articulate sound I think I've heard outside of like. $5,000 Odysseys. <laughs> it's so good. It's so good. Um, let me say, sorry, sorry, sorry. Diago saying, KZ is not a good brand. You can do a lot better with a Moondrop Chew 2 for 25 bucks. Okay. Truth Ear Zero Red for 50 or Truth Ear Hexa Moondrop Aria for 70 USD. I just have more experience. I, I should give Truth Ear a bit more of a listen because I haven't, I had those really terrible ear infections and I had to go and see um, a specialist, like a, a hardcore, I, I saw an audiologist and an ENT and my daughter was with me and I think I scarred her for life when they were like, yeah, you've got some stuff impacted in here. We've got to start excavating. And she saw me like sitting still as they were like digging these implements into my ears to get to some of the impacted wax that I had. Um, so I took a, a pretty hard break from doing lots of back-to-back-to-back-to-back earbud reviews, but I was just getting constant ear infections. So I, I need to come back, and I think I should give Truthier another listen. Um, I've also enjoyed Fio. Uh, I like Eco. I like... Um, there's someone else that I'm missing in there. I mean, I, I have my Odysseys over here. These are like my... my I've got a Flex, my expensive earbuds because these are planar magnetic earbuds, and they're delightful, but I don't recommend a lot of people spend money on them until you really know what you're listening for. But regardless, um, whatever kinds of experiences you're looking for, there is an inexpensive earbud that will satisfy, that will scratch that itch. So it's a... Uh, I mean, it, part of it, I, I find the exploration is fun. I like the novelty of listening on new earbuds and headphones. But once you kind of lock in, I really like the sound, then just stay for a bit. Then just live there. And with a good DAC, you're going to be great. You don't have to spend a ton of money to get a really high quality um, listening. Oh, vulgarity. For all of us old school audio nerds, the Sure Pouch is my favorite, is my IEM favorite. I have three of these little, from my old recording days of using Sure IEMs out on location. You can always tell when someone is an old audio nerd because we have one of these Sure Pouches not containing Sure gear. It is hilarious. 
There's so many, and especially here in Southern California where I run into other people that work in the industry, every location mixer you know has a sure pouch. And it's a coin flip whether or not there are sure IEMs in there. Actually, often it's ed, ed, they're Eddies, the Edimonics. Um, ed, Eddie, ed, blah, 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 blah. I can't say the name of the company. Edimotic? Edimotic. The name just immediately became nonsense in my mouth. But you know what brand I'm talking about. Um, oh, yeah, Michael Corcoran. We did, I did catch that. Ow Sounds apparently dissolved. So one of my favorite neck bands, a planar dual driver neck band, and we talked about them on the show when they were on sale on B&H for like 30 bucks. Um, that was a, they still are. They're over on the shelf behind me. Um, the Sound dual driver, a planar magnetic and a dynamic driver. That was a phenomenal Bluetooth neck band. I was really sad to see Sound uh, get, get carved up like that. Uh, does the BTR5 require a wired connection to your phone? No, 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 no. The BTR5 is a Bluetooth DAC that can work over USB-C if you want to go with a cabled connection. But um, if you go with the refresh BTR5, I believe it supports Aptex Adaptive, but they've all supported LDAC. So I just connect over LDAC, and it's awesome. Yeah. I mean, I actually kind of like the BTR5 a little bit better than the BTR7. The BTR7 is the slightly bigger one that's a little bit more like an iPod. Um, the BTR7, to my ears, and people might fight me on this, I think the BTR7 does better over Bluetooth, but it there's still this thing where you plug it in over a USB-C cable, and I'll connect it to a laptop, and it just never gets as full or as loud as the BTR5. And the BTR5, I don't have to turn up nearly as high to get what I feel is a comfortable listening volume, where sometimes I feel like I'm close to maxing out the BTR7 over a cable connection. And it just, I, I should also double check. I've been using the BTR5 so much that um, there might have been like a firmware update that I might be missing on that. Oh, and Michael Corcoran jumped in there too. BTR5 doesn't require a wired control, but it does give you the option. They're some of the most flexible. Same thing with... Um, the iFi's, uh, the, the FIOs and the iFi's, some really great options for going cabled or wireless or both. So it's, it's pretty solid. Oh, Kappa Cash. Yeah, same. I love the Sono Flow. And the fact that they were on sale, like, I think at one point the Sono Flow were like 60 bucks. $60. Those are great headphones for 60 bucks. I thought they were really good headphones at like 120 <laughs> Um, here, let me get this out of the way and get that right there. Okay. So, um, we, we got through Reddit. Uh, I I don't know this, this actually kind of broke last week and we were going to spend more time on it last week during the pajama podcast, but, um, (laughs) sorry, I just got to, I do one more on headphones and then we'll move on to Apple. Uh, one, uh, from Aditya Anil. One, I would recommend you take it slow with the truth ears. The ear nozzles on all their IEMs are really long and tend to go deep into your external auditory metis, purely out of concern for your health. I'd recommend you don't rush a truth ear review, but their sound is seriously good, like a proper departure from the deep V shape. I would absolutely be down to give that a listen. And unfortunately, my downfall is I like earbuds that go into my skull. I do not like earbuds. They just kind of rest outside. Just like they just kind of press up against your ear canal. Now, nah, you got to get in there. You got to ratchet that. 
got to got to got to make some space. That's that's how this works. All right, uh, shifting gears because we did have a couple little tech uh, tech block stories to cover. Also, uh, let me screen share here. The SGGQA podcast is brought to you in part by Me Audio. So here's the deal. If you've ever seen me in a live stream or in an interview or some other kind of video, you've probably seen me wearing some fancy earbuds. For the last couple years, my work buds have been almost exclusively from Me Audio. Excellent drivers, fantastic accessories, and both my wife and I had our ears scanned by the folks at Me Audio for custom molded ear tips. Super comfy. The MX line of Pro in-ear monitors is one of the easiest lineups to understand, starting at $60 and built around actual professional use. Detailed sound and durable construction, but also with some fun options like customizable faceplates. Even if you're not working on stage or in studio, Pro solutions like these are fantastic audio options, and they don't need to break the bank. And the company also supports a lineup of consumer gear with options for true wireless and noise-canceling Bluetooth earbuds, adapters for TVs to stream your audio to nicer headphones, and headsets for kids to help control the volume on fresh, developing ears. I can't stress that last one enough. We have to start kids out with healthier listening habits. It's a great combo, high-quality audio gear built by a team of folks with recording-grade use in mind, but at consumer-friendly prices. But of course, I can do you one better. If you shop the kit at meaudio.com and use promo code SOMEGADGETGUY at checkout, you can save an additional 10% over their already competitive prices. Once again, meaudio.com, M-E-E, audio.com. Shop some fun kit, promo code SOMEGADGETGUY at checkout, 10% off. Keep your ears and your wallet happy at the same time. I want to thank the folks at MeAudio for hooking up the promo code now. Let's get on with the show. Doug, I don't have to spend a lot of time on this, but I just thought it was kind of surprising and um, just an interesting state of the market right now. This is coming from GSM Arena, written up by Mikhail. Apple has been on a long and difficult path to develop its own in-house 5G modem, and it seems the battle is not headed in the right direction. They are abandoning their uh, 5G modem efforts. So this has been an ongoing saga of companies that are trying to get out from under Qualcomm having these specific feature monopolies. And especially in North America, it is very difficult to get around Qualcomm uh, because of the licensing deals that they had on 3G and LTE radios. Because in the United States, we had this stupid illusion of competition where we did not have regulatory agencies say work on compatible technologies, we let companies bifurcate our 3G and 4G with GSM and CDMA standards. Grossly oversimplifying, the situation is more complicated than that, but it allowed Qualcomm to come in and say, hey, we've got these patents on this type of radio tech, so if you want to do business in North America, you pretty much have to do business with us. Apple has been trying to get away from them. Google has gotten away from a lot of this Qualcomm manufacturing, and we're starting to see those little trickles of entrance from MediaTek and mid-rangers and entry-level phones, but nothing in the premium tier for North America. Even this year, it doesn't look like we'll really crack that either. But Apple, Apple has been fighting viciously to try and get away. 
We remember there were years where an iPhone would launch with either an Intel modem or a Qualcomm modem, and the Intel modem was noticeably inferior. So then Apple bought <laughs> the Intel modem division to try and further their efforts to do this. But along the way, they keep having to sign these updated licensing agreements with Qualcomm. So now it would seem that we've just gotten to a breaking point. It does not seem that Apple, with the former Intel division for radio modems, is going to be able to develop a system that is directly competitive against Qualcomm's solution without stepping on Qualcomm's patents or licensing fees. And it seems like Apple is just of a mind where they're going to be getting rid of that. This is a very interesting development in this market right now where if Apple can't pull this off, that basically means there are, I don't know if there are any other companies that can legitimately say, we can go toe-to-toe with Qualcomm's modem, we are just as energy efficient, we are just as performant, and we don't require any type of additional costs or licensing fees for Qualcomm patents. It does not seem that we're going to find that kind of split. The only other company that seems to be competitive especially in more LTE and 5G dominant um, regions, is MediaTek. And so I'll be very curious to see if maybe two or three years from now we see a strategic partnership with Google and MediaTek to supply that kind of radio functionality once they finally sort of extricate themselves from Samsung because Samsung's modems really aren't getting it done. The Exynos modem is kind of the distant third-place performer right now, it seems. Um, in in performance and in power management. So just kind of an interesting little business take. Uh, Apple uh, finally sort of admitting defeat in this arena. It's been pretty pretty interesting to watch. So all these rumors are now like Apple might be looking at camera sensors. I don't know why they would do that. Sony is kind of crushing right now. But it does seem that uh, they're going to be, if, if not ending, at least pushing pause on a lot of their public disclosures and developments as they are now, um, I think, I, I, I saw an estimate they're going to be going until 2030 with uh, Qualcomm components. So I don't know if anyone had radio stock. <laughs> yeah, Dave Burns, exactly that. Modem and antenna tech is so hard, too, because tuning to frequency band is a necessarily strict application, and Qualcomm has such a stranglehold at the, at the expense of performance. I, it gives, there's a lot going on in that space. Um, I just mentioned Samsung. The other part of this is we've, we're getting some accounts on the expenditures. So uh, in 2022, we saw terrible performance from the Snapdragon 8 Gen 1 made by Samsung, and uh, the Exynos made by Samsung. And in 2023, we saw Samsung go all in on Qualcomm-produced SOCs made by TSMC. So admitting defeat not only for the Exynos brand, but also for the Samsung semiconductor industry was not a great year for Samsung. So on top of that, we also see that because of their reliance on uh, Qualcomm parts, There was a significant increase, a 204% increase in expenditures since 2019. 
the more they lean on Qualcomm, it seems, the more they're spending per phone per unit. And this is actually likely going to mean that next year's phones are going to be very conservative devices. Um, According to a previous rumor, the company is again limiting the Galaxy S24 lineup to feature 12 gigabytes of RAM, whereas the competition is not just proceeding with launches sporting the 8 Gen 3, but are sold for a lower price and feature a whopping 24 gigs of RAM, the latest entrant being the OnePlus 12. Uh, One can argue that Samsung pushes more volume than its other Android competitors, but the Korean giant's shipments have not drastically increased compared to last year. This is written up by Omar Sohail over at WCCF Tech. So I would expect that next year's lineup for Galaxy phones is going to be very modest and iterative. As we saw from both the Qualcomm and the MediaTek summits, where AI was kind of the big talking point for a lot of these silicon manufacturers, the thing that holds AI back is limiting the amount of RAM on the device. That's why we're seeing some of these silly phones coming out with 24 gig of RAM. It does not help you in the slightest when you're doing your basic or even your your higher level compute tasks on a phone. Where you unpack the operations and the parameters of a language learning model, boy howdy, do you need a ton of RAM to facilitate that. So it seems like if the Galaxy S24 lineup is succumbing to this kind of market pressure from having to spend more on components like the SoC and having to iterate on fewer and niceties like expanding the amount of ram it looks like the galaxy s24 could actually be one of the poorer performers for some of these fads for some of these ai solutions and some of this ai exploration that to me is not a deal breaker like i'm not going to not recommend someone get an s24 just because they can't do as much fun ai stuff but i i feel like that's likely going to make samsung solution feel a bit more like a pixel we can do this cool ai stuff in the cloud and then it comes right back down to your phone and you barely notice the file transfer if you're on the fastest 5g i think that's gonna be a part of this play um this has gotten so ugly that there are now rumors this is coming by way of sam mobile uh sam mobile written up by mihai matei i've mispronounced your name and i apologize uh exynos might be rebranded to dream chip next year Uh, Update. According to Samsung Semiconductor, in reply to Android Authority, the rumors about the Exynos rebranding are not true. So, this is the... I'm I'm still bringing this this article up. Not because, like, oh, gosh, they fell so hard they're going to rebrand. That's already been proven to be untrue. What's fascinating to me is Samsung is one of the darling brands of media and tech journalism. And they are courting these rumors hard. And that is how little confidence a lot of the tech journalists have in chips like Exynos that the word Exynos is becoming something a little toxic. And we all got really excited when we saw Snapdragon for Samsung because that was finally a market upgrade for all of the consumers on Samsung products around the world that did not have access to the higher performance and better battery life of the Qualcomm counterparts. Samsung would charge those consumers just as much for the Exynos-flavored variants, sometimes more, but they did not perform the same. So this year, we saw these kinds of stories coming out. Oh, they might change the name away from Exynos. And you're like, 
Yeah, actually that kind of tracks. That is a rumor that seems like it could maybe be accurate because the performance disparity between these parts has been so significant. Unfortunately, even just the rebranding doesn't seem like it's likely to happen, but uh, I'd be very anxious to see if there's a, a, a group of S24s that come out with Exynos parts that won't be in the United States. There's still going to be Qualcomm in the United States. I'm very confident that, that Samsung will launch Qualcomm parts in South Korea so they have the best version on their own home turf. And then yet again, in every other region on the planet, especially throughout the EU, we'll be back to Exynos again. If the performance disparity of the Tensor is anything to kind of go by, Samsung CPU cores and Samsung radios are not feature competitive with their Qualcomm counterparts. You still get a great phone, still performs great. Awesome. You will not get the exact same tier of performance and you will not get the battery life using Samsung parts over Qualcomm parts. So it's, uh, it's pretty rough. I kept this also in because one of the first... Uh, oh, I should have copied it out. So I caught this story on Lemmy. Um, and one of the first comments because, uh, you know, they're saying they might rebrand this to Dream Chip. So that was already a little suspect, a little silly as a rumor goes. But the one of the first replies was, well, nightmares can be dreams also. <laughs> You're like, yeah. Yeah, I feel like someone getting a Dream Chip Samsung phone could be in for a bit of a nightmare. <laughs> J-Man 150, more like, hell chip instead of exynos <laughs> see michael corkin this is exactly what i'm talking about it's all about moving the goalposts it's funny how samsung fans brag so much about the performance of the s23 and the hn2 in particular even though it solved the problem caused by samsung which had the more inefficient chips and also snapdragon for samsung wasn't anything significant um, it did seem like it was kind of a binning process where I'm sure Samsung was paying more to get better binned chips. But I think the OnePlus Open and the Xiaomi 13 non-pro, non-ultra ended up being two of the fastest phones that I reviewed over all of 2023. Um, and the OnePlus, the, the Xiaomi 13 Ultra was also really close in there. But those two phones specifically outperformed the S23 Ultra in most of the tests that I conducted. And uh, the Xiaomi 13 Ultra was like neck and neck with the Galaxy Ultra, with the Note, the Note 23 throughout most of the tests that I performed. So it was like, sure, I believe it is a better binned chip, but it didn't seem like it was structurally or functionally any different. Then another manufacturer that also spent money on getting the better binned chips from Qualcomm. So it, it, it was just a silly aspect of marketing to kind of staple all that together. Oh, Michael Corcoran, absolutely. When Pixel gets TSMC fabrication in 2025, you got to wonder about the future of Samsung's fab. Um, whoops, I just cut my mic. We need Samsung to be competitive, but they're not. Like, they're dumping all this money into the Korean economy. It's $10 billion a year over the next, like, 20 years. Um, I forget exactly what the numbers are. But, like, or is it $20 billion a year over the next 10 years? Something. 
but they're just really not rising to this occasion. And there's a reason why even Intel is doing work with TSMC to get these parts and products out. Another example of, of this, and we can kind of wrap up the show talking about what our expectations should be when we talk about these really, really expensive phones. So I've got a, uh, a Dimensity 9200 right here. This is my Vivo X90 Pro. Love this phone. I have been fighting the urge to import the X100 Pro. I want it so bad. The Vivos have been rocking my socks for this like high tier of computational photography. Uh, but this was shared last week, and I mentioned it last week, and then I completely forgot to talk about it. Uh, some early benchmarks from Notebook Check. The Vivo X100 Pro crumbles under stress as Dimensity 9300 reportedly thermal throttles to less than half of its maximum performance. So I wanted to highlight this now because Notebook Check has also updated this article. Uh, concerning a report about the purported thermal throttling of the Dimensity 9300, MediaTek reached out to us with the following response. It is well known that all modern smartphones include thermal throttling to ensure the device temperature stays in an acceptable or safe range. A better way to use the CPU throttle test as a way to compare devices side by side would be run the, run the test with same device case temperature. With MediaTek's big core CPU architecture, the Dimensity 9300 will achieve a much higher max and average score than the competitors if the testing is done correctly. In summary, the Dimensity 9300 will be able to deliver more computing performance across the span of the test. So this is my big concern. Notebook Check is looking at some of the, these, these benchmarks and some of these tests where basically you just throw math problems at a chip until it starts to get hot and then you see how it starts to slow down. Um, I think, what was it, c for e -tech? Yeah, c for e -tech in English uh, did a report on the Vivo X100 Pro's performance. But they show, oh man, at some point it, it seriously starts to degrade. Um, from their original story, we recently reported that although the Cortex-X4 core inside the Snapdragon 8 Gen 3 affords a lot of raw CPU performance, the core was found to consume a whopping 28% more energy than the Cortex-X3, which we talked about um, last week also. But this is, this is the, the issue, and I brought this up directly to MediaTek executives, and I don't feel like they completely answered that question, but we keep showing off an Antutu score or a Geekbench score. And that is minutes of operation doing tiny little burst tests. So if you run a Geekbench on your phone, you get this one number. Or you get a single core score and a multi-core score. You, but you get these two numbers. And that's reflective of how gooder or badder the performance is. But those numbers are derived from running a dozen tiny little tests. So I ask you, when you pick up your phone do you do microsecond interactions with your phone and then quickly exit that application and do another microsecond interaction with another app on your phone and then quickly exit that and do another microsecond interaction with another app 20 times in a row? I would imagine you don't. So the active synthetic benchmarking is completely non-reflective and completely different than the act of picking up your phone and doing one thing on your phone. The vast majority of commentary from MediaTek has been saying, our CPU cores are now so powerful 
you give it a task, it completes the task crazy fast, and then all of those CPU cores get to rest. And that's where we're making up our power efficiency. That's great. If you're talking about just a burst of activity, and then you're looking at the output of that activity, a lot of social media interactions are kind of like that. You, you soak up a whole bunch of content off the radios. It sort of layers out all of that content in the app, and then you can scroll through it until it needs to, refre until it needs to refresh and find more content. Quick burst, very fast delivery of information, CPU cores are at rest again. Makes total sense to me. But we're also talking about photography-focused, high-performance, portable computing, laptop replacement types of devices. And it makes me anxious that if you hit it with a bigger sustained task, are we going to see a slowdown beyond what last year's chip can do? Because that's what happened to us with the 8 Gen 1. It could peak at a much higher level of performance. And it could not sustain that performance, and it quickly dropped to a much lower tier of performance. You're hitting the battery, you're hitting the thermals, you're hitting the radios. All of the parts of the phone are generating heat. How do we sustain performance? And so I don't believe right now in these early tests that the Dimensity 9300 looks like it's going to be another 8 Gen 1 from last year, but considering how power efficient the 9000 and the 9200 were, I am a little anxious about what the sort of overall impression, what the overall performance idea should be. A Vivo is exactly the kind of phone someone might want to shoot a bunch of video clips and then edit those video clips on the phone. It's kind of one of those perfect devices for that kind of uh, uh, mobile content creation. You're making a little short or a little TikTok. That is pretty tough usage on a phone CPU. The Vivo is a type of phone where a mobile journalist might want to really use it to take a whole bunch of photos and then upload them to their editors and then do a batch process on those photos to make sure they've got all the metadata right and that they have compressed the images for faster sending. You can fire that up in Lightroom or in uh, Photomate or in Exen Convert while doing a batch photo, uh, a batch processing of photos that takes some work. So we want to know, will that Vivo X100 complete the batch process faster than the 9200? We won't know until we can test it under a sustained workload. And unfortunately, all we're seeing are these synthetic benchmark tests. I ran Geekbench 10 times in a row and watch how the scores change has nothing to do with how someone is really going to use that phone out in the field. It is the dumbest, laziest way to grade performance because it is non-reflective of any type of real-world application. What you're telling me is, I ran 80 applications on my phone for split-second in interactions. It's an app opening, closing speed test at that point. You haven't really used the phone to do anything. Shoot video, edit it, and render it. Shoot photos, edit some raw files, batch process, upload. Like These are things that might actually be uh, utilized when someone's working out in the field. Open some documents, compress some files, open a zip, compress a zip. Like Those are things that office workers might need to do occasionally from their phone if they can't get to their laptop. This is the kind of stuff that we still need to take a look at.
So I appreciate MediaTek's, MediaTek's response because it's difficult to kind of fairly compare oranges to oranges. If you're running this kind of CPU test, you don't really get to put it next to a Qualcomm SOC because you have no idea what's going on on the inside of that phone. You have no idea what the materials, what the cooling, what the uh, thermal throttling, the software is all leaning on for a Xiaomi. It, it's not an oranges to oranges comparison. It's, it makes benchmarking kind of maddening uh, because like to a point you have to acknowledge like it's not all perfectly fair, but at some point it's a phone in my hand and I need it to do a task. And this is what it looks like when it does this task. And I can tell you about that. So I've been adding those kinds of performance charts to the Patreon, patreon.com slash guy. The most recent, I, I put the OnePlus Open up against the Pixel 8 Pro and updated my charts after a few app updates had come out. And you get a pretty clear look at like what a high performance phone is capable of in 2023. So I'm really anxious to see what next year's devices are going to do because I worry they're chasing AI and they're chasing Antutu scores. And I don't know that these are all going to be improvements over the... The 8 Gen 2 is so good. The Dimensity 9200 is so good. And I don't want to lose the power efficiency that we got off of those two chips. I don't care if I get a 10% bump in CPU scores if it consumes 20% more battery life. That doesn't help me. I don't want that. (laughs) These things are crazy fast. I want to be able to use the same performance that I got in 2023 and save 10% on my battery life or maybe push it even a little further. Maybe I get a button on my phone that says, run this as the same power as a phone from 2020. If I had a Snapdragon 865 button on my phone and it throttled performance down to the 865, but I got all of the power management improvements from the newer process, that would be a three-day battery life phone under my usage. That would be huge. That would be an enormous upgrade. And I think that's what more consumers would actually really want, is that kind of battery life. Um, let me see. I'm sorry, I'm way behind on the chat, so I'm going to try and catch this up again. Diago, you, I, I knew you would actually have a comment on this. I think GSM Arena also did a test where they put all cores working at max speed with the same results. Two minutes of top performance and throttling to around 50% speed. The Snapdragon 8 Gen 2 fared a lot better. You know what? Before we cap this, I want to see if I can find GSM Arena Dimensity 9300. Uh, Or maybe I need to just search. Oh, there it is. Throttled in under two minutes. Uh, okay, as the new Vivo X100, I was actually cool. Actually, is this is this kind of talking about the same source? I think this might be the same. Oh, just as a point of reference, a Snapdragon HN2 equipped phone usually runs to around eighty percent of its performance yield after more than sixty minutes of the CPU throttle in our testing. So what does that mean? 80% of its performance. Let me, let me click on this because I want to try and understand. Uh, so 60 minutes and it's staying at 80% after an hour of running the same test. If I'm understanding that correctly. So this to me is one of those concerns that I had. 
Unfortunately, when we're looking at this CPU monitor test, I'm not entirely sure what or how it's testing except just for pure data throughput. Um, I'd need to look up what their measurement and what their criteria are. But this is, this is kind of a part of the concern that I've had with the way that we talk about efficiency. Because I don't believe MediaTek is incorrect. For quick bursts of activity, the Dimensity 9300 looks like it's going to be an absolute monster. But I fear, how do we manage the sustained performance of all of these big cores? The, the, the build that's going into the Dimensity 9300 looks a lot like... Um, it actually looks a lot like the core configuration on my Robo and Kala. So this is using four big cores and four medium-sized cores. This is kind of the, the evolutionary ancestor to what the Dimensity 9300 is doing, and the performance is even higher on the Dimensity 9300. So especially here in North America, if we could get the Dimensity 9300 on a tablet, that thing would be a monster. You'd have a bigger battery to support it. You'd have more surface area for passive cooling. It's a lot, it looks a lot like what the Snapdragon 8 CX Gen 3 looks like, but it's in a phone. <laughs> so again, it's like, I think we're gonna have to be a little bit more specific about phones and parts and pieces going into 2024. Like, if you really like to play games on your phone, you know, active cooling becomes a lot more interesting. Um, so Aditya Anil, we, we play around with this a little bit. Um, Aditya says, uh, can MediaTek, Qualcomm, or the OEMs Give me the ability to decide whether or not I want the cores to burst perform or perform, perform sustainably. Like, I paid you money for the phone. Just give me a way to adjust the max wattage supplied. And it made me really sad when Samsung kind of removed the additional flexibility on this. But if you're on a OnePlus, for example, it is a, a, a phenomenally performant phone. The OnePlus Open is quick and it's responsive. And it loses most tests that you put it under. And then you go into your battery settings and you say, use all the battery you want and cook the insides of that phone. And it leaps to the top of the performance charts in all but one of my tests. And so we have that sort of. The governor and the limiter on the OnePlus Open under its out-of-the-box configuration are pretty strict. They're, they're resistant to letting you really tap but as soon as you open up that battery setting, it is full steam ahead. And you'll watch that battery deplete pretty quick. I want something that I think is a little bit more configurable or it gives me like small, medium, large. Because when you go down into like power saver, you lose a lot of functionality and connectivity on your phone. But I want something that can be like, go real low, go sort of medium or full steam ahead before I also then go into ultra power saver when my battery's low. So I'd like a four tier. <laughs> and I don't think the OEMs are gonna give us that. And that, that makes me, me kind of sad. <laughs> DTNL, I don't open 80 apps a week. <laughs> go Starscream, but Juan, 
thermal throttling is a good thing. That's how all things work, is they thermal throttle at some point. <laughs> so JFR, this is what kills me. Uh, JFR says, 2023, and some people still care about synthetic benchmarks with that emoji that's kind of like thinking and putting a finger on his chin. No one cares about synthetic benchmarks except for hardcore spec memorizing techies on YouTube. No one cares about synthetic benchmarks except for people that write articles, and especially in India, where they have to compare phones and they only seem to recognize an Antu 2 score. That's it. And unfortunately, that does trickle down and color the perception of performance for general consumers. If your tech press says this had a bigger score, it must be more powerful. The rest of the tech audience and consumers don't understand all of that information. They just kind of blindly follow. Well, like that's a reputable tech blog and they said it was more powerful. So that must be more powerful, but no, it has no relationship with real world performance. It is not indicative of real world performance. And very often you will get a phone that does not perform better for your needs if you just buy the bigger Antutu 2 score. But that's what's so frustrating is getting that information out there. You actually have to convince the techies that it's valuable first. And for some reason, phone techies have completely given up. Like they have completely walked away from a nuanced conversation about performance. You get a few little glimmers like a Geeker one or a Golden Reviewer that will sit there and look at power usage and try and compare against a few different metrics. But it's usually only in one game. And again, in a synthetic benchmarking app, and it doesn't, it still doesn't quite stick the landing. It's not like, I don't know of anyone who's doing something like a hardware unboxed or a gamer's nexus with phones. I wanted to try and be that guy, but no one watches that content. No one shares that content. So I just put it up on the Patreon. If you'd like to tap in to what that stuff can do, patreon.com slash some gadget guy, but it's... It's pretty, it's pretty dead. People look at phones and they're these basic communicators and some of them are more expensive than others and you can kind of play games on them, but Android games suck even though there are some really amazing game experiences that you can share on mobile. And that's it. That's sort of like as much of the conversation as even techies are willing to entertain. But for some reason, we all still want improvements and optimization and more performance and better cameras and better screens and more power and better power efficiency and more performance and more power efficiency. And we keep saying we want this stuff, but the majority of the tech conversation is, but who even does things on their phones and who even needs that performance? But then if you don't give it to them, oh, but can you believe that they don't give us the more performance? How come we don't get more performance? Okay, well, then what do you use it for? Oh, but no one does things on their phones. And it's literally like the same outlets that are having this 1984 double-think debate with themselves. <laughs> you, don't make me pay premium prices for a phone that has a lower N22 score, but also average consumers. <laughs> You're like, this is so stupid. You would be having so much fun, more fun with phones if you just did things with your phone. Give yourself a challenge. Can you use your phone to replace all of your work from your laptop? Can you do it for a day? I've done it for a week. Can you do, can, can you legitimately walk away from the sort of established familiarity of your current workflow? 
Can you get your work done with mobile apps? Can you push the limits on what a phone or a tablet can do? It's an amazing challenge. Most of the time you're going to fail. And yet you'll still walk away like, oh, there's so much more I could be using this stuff for. I've got gobs of compute power that's just sitting here in my pocket doing nothing. (laughs) And I could be using it for so much more. And even when you don't fully replace all that stuff, it's amazing. It's great. And it also kind of helps shake up your workflow. So I obviously can't edit in DaVinci Resolve on my OnePlus Open. But that led me into using uh, PowerDirector and KineMaster. Eventually, we got LumaFusion. And now there were legitimately times where I do not want to use DaVinci Resolve because I know the final output and the final product will be better in the workflow of the phone camera and LumaFusion in the moment. And then I'm done. It is so much faster. And all you got to do is try. I, I recently posted, I, was, uh, I think it was on Threads or on Mastodon. Um, I've been producing this podcast for years and, uh, I, I recently just kind of took a look at my workflow. I was using old Sony programs, uh, SoundForge and, uh, um, Acid and Sony Vegas. I, I just had these templates saved, uh, for finishing off the podcast. And so I'd run the audio through, do some noise reduction. Then I'd put this into Sony Vegas. I had a template, so it organized all the audio tracks and then it spits out an MP3 And that was real slow, but it just worked, right? Like, I didn't have to think about it. I could kind of autopilot it. That was great. Very, very recently, like a couple weeks ago, I started trying just like, well, what if I did the same thing in DaVinci Resolve? Well, here's a problem. DaVinci Resolve does not offer a setting to compress MP3 audio as low as Sony Vegas. Okay, so that doesn't quite work, but I just wanted to see. So I put my podcast into DaVinci Resolve. I created a template so that I had all the same like uh, bumpers and ad blocks and stuff like that. And I rendered it out as a WAV file. And then I took that WAV file and I put it into Audacity. Oh, the audacity of using Audacity to do the final compression so I could get a small enough MP3 to send up to my podcast host. It is so much faster than what I was using on Sony Vegas and Sony SoundForge. Like, twice as fast. Incredible. (laughs) So if you don't occasionally shake up your workflow, you're missing out on those opportunities to find better tools, better solutions, and to get your work done, not only at a higher quality, but much, much faster. And that's one of the things that kind of helps with the mindset of finding those alternatives on mobile apps. Oh, who could even do things on their phones? I need all of these apps on my computer. And I call BS that most people could could find a corollary or a comparable solution on mobile. They're just kind of lazy and they don't want to. It's fine if you want to say, I don't want to. But don't tell me you're doing such precious video editing work for your YouTube channel and you couldn't use something like LumaFusion to get a similar quality of work done. You just don't want to take the time to get familiar with LumaFusion. I get you. It's a hurdle. It's a barrier. But once you take that time and you take that step, you're going to be so much more open to finding those other alternatives and it helps. It sparks creativity. It sparks joy. (laughs) Instead of just like, I'm doing the same thing I've always done and I will always do the same thing forever. And until someone can make exactly the same thing that I'm using, I'm not going to try another product is a miserable way to be. If if, If you're listening to people and they're telling you that like phones are boring because 
they don't do anything new, that's someone who is outright telling you that they are boring. The person is boring, not the phone, the person. Because I'll tell you, to look at the last couple of years where we went through the drama of the 888 and we went through the drama of the 8 Gen 1 and Apple has also had issues going from the iPhone 11 to the 12 to the 13 to the 14 where it has not been consistent improvement. It has been some improvement, some de- degradation to the experience, some improvement, and then yet another drop off on features that people care about. If you made it through all of that and you got to play with phones with 8 Gen 2s and 1-inch camera sensors and new AI capabilities and you're like, oh, but it's just the same as everything else. The phones plateaued years ago and they don't do anything new. All that means is you've done nothing new with all of this incredible technology that at the same time, you keep telling people you need to buy the new stuff to get the bigger scores and the better cameras and the newer tech. So what are you doing? And this is actually more for tech reviewers than anyone in this chat, but super, super lame. If you can look at some of these incredible advancements, when I'm holding a Xiaomi 13 Ultra and it can shoot comparable to my micro four thirds cameras, it's sensor level performance is right on par with my Lumix G9. And I can then take that and edit video faster than I can on an 11th gen Intel Core i7 laptop. And I can upload directly because the radios are in the camera and the computer that I shot and edited the footage from. And I don't have to carry a laptop and I don't have to carry a camera. I'm telling you, techies are missing out on a ton of fun. And it makes me sad because these things are expensive. So you should be getting a lot more for your money. (laughs) That's that's, that's enough kind of wacky from me. Um, T-Bub's Audacity is great. I've been recommending it since my early days as, as an audio guy, as some audio guy. Uh, he says, Audacity is such a great free tool. I use it for my podcast. So right now I'm playing with Winlater. Um, I, I haven't gotten it to work with much, uh, but I, I'm still kind of digging into finding more optimal settings for, for Winlater. And Winlater is, uh, is, is, uh, I'm going to try and prop this up right here. It'll take a second to load. This is my OnePlus Open. And you see this Windows desktop just arrived. And now let me uh, minimize this. And I don't know. Like, I've got Avidon uh, installed. It's it's a game. And let me just go ahead and hit OK. I mean, it, it all looks like, like Windows XP dialog boxes. But, you know, i got some wine action going on. It's an emulator. I'm going to let this load up here. Full PC game just installed from an EXE file running on my OnePlus Open. I didn't have to root or ROM or install any type of Linux uh, kernel or do anything funky to set any of this up. So there it is. So Avidon the Black Fortress. And let me load the game that I was in. And just say quick start. I'll, I'll just start a new game. I'll be Tristram again. Um, the, the mouse actions are, are a little clumsy for how they stay on screen, but you know, it's starting up a new game and I can, uh, oh, let me, uh, get through all these dialogue options. It's a classic old point and click adventure PC kind of game and just load pretty quick. Uh, I'm getting like 20 frames per second, but it's an old game. So that's kind of fun. But with some optimizations, I could probably run audacity off of my OnePlus open. There we go. Look at that cute little point and click adventure game. Let me just kind of move the mouse around and kind of click there. My little guy is going to run right over there. 
got a dialogue prompt. This is awesome. This is great. This is all emulated Windows program functionality. I had to install .NET. I had to install uh, a couple other like plugins and containers to get some stuff to work, but it was all in WinLater, and it was all like immediately accessible to get this kind of performance out of it. So uh, already, like, I'm going to try GIMP. I'm going to try Audacity. I'm going to see if I can make this into even more of a Windows-based laptop. <laughs> Because it's there's there's no point in having all of this compute power, none at all. You should be on a mid-ranger processor if you're like, mm, but it's just for browsing social media. Don't don't do that. It's such a waste, and a waste for your money and your time. Oh, dude, fat produce. I'd kill to be able to play Civilization Five proper on mobile. Um, you know, you're telling me I can play Crisis on my phone? Um, maybe. Actually, you know the one that I want to try? I'm going to try this over the next couple days. I don't know how well it'll work, but I really want to get, like, a, a good dungeon crawler. Like, um, like, Torchlight. Like, I've got a copy of Torchlight 2 that is DRM, DRM free. Like, I got it from good old games. I think I'm going to have to try Torchlight and see if I can get it playing on my phone. You know, hook it up with the mouse, just control it all. But point and click, little mini adventure game, I think that would be awesome. Um, or, or, like, Diablo 2. If I could get Diablo 2 running proper, that would be great. But yeah, WinLater is totally free. So it's just a Windows emulator on your phone. <laughs> and you can create different containers. So let's say you want a gaming setup. You can have all of your games sort of installed into one virtual Windows machine and all of your productivity software installed into a different virtual machine. And it's running real slick on... Um, on, on the HN2. Um, Gormlord, does the Fold have DisplayPort? Yeah, it does. So the OnePlus executives said that it did not support video output, and I disproved that at their own conference. Plug it in some camera, uh, plugging in my uh, wearable glasses, my virtual, uh, my TCLs. Um, but yeah, there's no good... Uh, desktop mode the android desktop mode is even more broken than it used to be but the fold does support video output so yeah um just fun little handy tip for you at the end of the podcast because we've run a little bit long but i'm going to shut the show down now before we get to proper two and a half hours folks thanks so much for tuning in tons of tech news this is exactly the kind of monday morning i needed dig into some meaty stuff talk about some controversial stuff an amazing chat to hang out with. You all were awesome this week, and I definitely appreciate those of you who have been supporting, who have been joining the Patreon, uh, doing subscriptions on the Twitch. All of that stuff really does help keep this up and running. And I know times are tight. I know things are tough. And if you know, you're know you not able to support financially, um, I completely get it because you know our, our Christmas is looking a little tight this year too. Um, but even those of you who are making the efforts to share and uh, review and participate and look at social media, not just as like, oh, I shared a picture of my food, but like really looking at all the content creators out there that could use a little nudge or use a little help. Um, those efforts are greatly appreciated. I cannot thank you enough. Please hit me up on Mastodon. Let's get into conversations throughout the week. Don't, don't feel like this is a once a week thing and then I just sort of bugger off for a while. I genuinely love the follow-ups and the conversations and sort of the debates that these types of topics can spark. And I feel if we let that just go to algorithms, 
then we get a very warped perspective on what's going on with our favorite hobbies, our favorite tech gadgets and tech topics. So uh, I want you all to have an amazing week. I want you to be awesome with your technology. I want you to do awesome with your technology. I'll catch you back here next week for another episode of the Monday Morning Tech Chat Show on the SGGQA podcast channel. Be safe. Take care. I love you all. And I'll catch you back. Recording voiceover, spoken word, is truly one of my favorite activities. My second favorite hobby is photography. Now, the smartphone might be making us deaf, but we can't deny the awesome power of the phone as a platform for photography and multimedia creation. If you've been looking to improve your mobile photog skills, if you want to produce more professional content, or you're just looking to take your family photos to the next level, I wrote a book to help you out with that. Take Better Photos, Smartphone Photography for Noobs is available on Amazon Kindle. Walking through the basic terminology of photography, covering the settings on your camera, discussing composition and inspiration, and I even include a long list of exercises and challenges to really hone your skills, all with some helpful example photos and diagrams. Search for Take Better Photos, Smartphone Photography for Noobs on Amazon, or use the quick link bit.ly slash betterphotosbook to grab your copy today. Okay.